welcome to episode 1980 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. So we've got a preview pod for you all today. We will be talking about the Tampa Bay Rays and the Detroit Tigers, but a few things to discuss before then. We could do an entire episode or a week's worth of episodes just on the WBC if we wanted to. There's just, it's so much fun and there's so much to keep up with. I mean, there's no way to keep up. It's like the playoffs where we have trouble keeping up, but, but more because there are just so many games and so many moments. Sometimes teams are playing two games in a day, at least in my time zone or our time zones, right? So as soon as you marvel at one moment, then often that same team is in action again. It's almost like there's no time to savor anything, but it's just coming fast and furious, which is really fun too. So since the last time we talked, what have you enjoyed? There have just been so many highlights. Well, I I guess as we're recording this on Tuesday, it feels a little silly to start with anything other than Puerto Rico's walk off <laughs> run rule perfect game. <laughs> yeah. Aiden perfect game mercy rule. I don't even know what to tell what to call it. I don't quite know what to call it either. I know that it isn't, you know, technically a perfect game because they mm-hmm. didn't secure twenty seven outs, but you know, uh they secured all the outs they were allowed to. So yep. I think it's still quite exciting. Um it's one of those moments where you're like, wow, it is gonna have to be a combined perfecto because of the pitch rules, but it was thrilling and they were so excited. I don't know. It was really great. So I, that is certainly uh, top of mind for me. The emotional roller coaster that was the potential fate of Team USA mm-hmm. over a 24 hour period where they looked toast. And then by virtue of like Harry Ford, really um, <laughs> helping <laughs> to helping Great Britain defeat Columbia, we're, we're right back in it. And then obviously we're triumphant in their, their nightcap. I, Ben, so here's the thing. Uh-huh. I'm happy that they won, I guess. I don't feel like a, a tremendous amount of like patriotic investment, but yeah. it was nice to see them hitting the way that you expected them to. But also, I felt very uncomfortable uh, watching a lineup of former All-Stars, MVPs, top war getters, just ruining the night of a 19-year-old. <laughs> it felt... It felt bad. It felt, I just like, I looked at this young man. He's got a young face too, you know? Yeah. Pretty baby face. And I was just like, I hope that you appreciate that you were presented with a very hard job that was perhaps hard to the point of being unfair. And I know it didn't go well, but you did show up to do it. And there's Mm -hmm. something in that, you know? We we perhaps need to have a, a greater appreciation for pitchers who you know they just they're willing to wear one you know he -hmm. had to know it was gonna go badly i mean maybe he didn't think it would go quite that badly but he had to know it would go badly and that was that was what was required because they wanted to save their better pitching for matchups that they thought they had a better shot of winning and like his last name is brat and he's so young (laughs) and he doesn't seem like a brat but it's just like oh it's this tiny tiny man 
Yeah, I don't know whether that's a bug or a feature of the tournament that there really is a wide range in talent. I mean, you have major leaguers and you have players who are very far from being major leaguers. And that leads to some almost uncomfortable moments and just pity and and sympathy, which I mentioned last week I was feeling when I was watching China and and young pitchers on that team going up against Shohei Otani and all these guys. It's like you don't usually have to face these players. You can tell just from the bodies sometimes because small big leaguers are still pretty big. Even if they're not tall, they're strapping. And some of the players on some WBC teams are sort of shrimpy by comparison. It's just like you're not built like a big leaguer. And sometimes, yeah, there are blowouts and teams get beat up or Puerto Rico pitches a perfect most of a game against Israel or or, or whatever. But it also leads to some really fun moments where... You had Otani who hit that moonshot against Australia. Oh, man. And then in another game against the Czech Republic, he got struck out by Andre Satoria, who, as many people noted, is an electrician in his day job. And, you know, he had a a sound clip where he said, like, the world stopped and he felt like he was having a heart attack when he struck out Shohei Otani. It was... It was something, uh, something awesome. Yeah. It's like the whole world was stopped in the mo- in the in the moment, like a heart attack, man. It, it was hard. I just I just looked to my dugout and hey, I got him. That's a moment to tell your kids and your grandkids about and and brag about for the rest of your life. So. That's kind of cool, right? I mean, I guess it's not so different from a dream team sort of situation where it's not really fun if it's not competitive, unless you're just so sort of uh, jingoistic that you just want to beat up every other country and that's it. But it's not even just a U.S. thing, obviously. They're just mismatches all over the bracket, really. But there have been a lot of really good games, even in games that theoretically could have been mismatches. So it's not like I'm watching most of the action thinking this is unfair, this is uncompetitive, but occasionally there are players who are wearing one and you feel for them. Yeah, especially when they like, you know, are probably excited about facial hair being able to right. come in fully. You know, like, I mean, I don't want to infantilize the young man. He's 19. Like he can... Well, he can do all kinds of things in Canada that he probably can't do here, but uh, this is a person who's becoming a, a real fully-fledged human being. So I don't mean to make it too too big a difference, but also, boy, did it feel bad. I felt yeah. so bad for him. I was like, pull him, pull him now. Get him out <laughs> right. of there. Yeah. And then you had the, the five-way tie yeah. in Pool A that... Cuba and Italy advanced after very complicated tiebreaker so <laughs> calculations, which no one can follow because it's no. not just a run differential or something no. obvious like that. It's lowest quotient of fewest runs allowed divided yes. by the number of defensive outs recorded in yeah. games between the teams that are tied, followed by lowest quotient of fewest earned runs allowed divided by the number of defensive outs recorded in games between the teams that are tied, followed by highest batting average in games in that round between the teams tied why why batting average i don't yeah. know and then and then just a drawing of lots it's just like we give up just just draw lots yeah you get to the, like good luck phase yeah so we don't know yeah so it's just been a lot of fun and i gotta say 
given all of this and, and the fact that we just get two weeks of this yeah. precious WBC and then it goes away for four more years, barring any pandemics in the interim. And I got to say, you know, the meme with the guy at the table who puts a sign out and says, change my mind. Well, here's my version of that meme. Why can we not have more frequent WBC? Mm. WBC should be at least every two years. Okay. Change my mind or agree with me. Because here, <laughs> here's my case. I, I don't really understand why it is every four years other than the fact that you have a tradition of big international sporting events being held every four years with the Olympics or the World Cup, etc. But right. I don't think any of the restrictions and impediments that apply to those really apply to the WBC. It, it doesn't really seem to me like there's any reason why it shouldn't happen at least every two years, because the things that prevent you from holding those other events more frequently, I mean, you have just enormous costs and infrastructure right. requirements, right? And right. you have to just build a village. You don't need a WBC village, right? And the ballparks are there and you're already playing it across different countries. So no one country is having to shoulder the load and build a bunch of stuff and have people suffer to build the right. infrastructure for all of this. And there aren't just a huge number of participants like there are in those events, you know, like dozens and dozens, hundreds of, of countries participating and all of the qualifying events that lead up to that. Like it takes years to decide who's in those things, right? right. Let alone to play them. And then, of course, you have long traditions because those are events that have been held for a long time. So they stem from eras when travel wasn't as easy and fast as it is now. I mean, you do the Olympics every four years because that's what they did in ancient Greece. I mean, they probably had to right. set out to get there like a year before it started. I mean, you know, or <laughs> even like the World Cup when they started that, it was before you could just easily fly everywhere. And also you have alternating events in those things, right? So you have winter and summer games that are alternating, or instead of the World Cup, you have like continental cups and soccer tournaments that are held in the off years of the World Cup. So you do have more frequent events, and there are all sorts of reasons why it might be tough to hold those flagship events more often. But I don't think those really apply to the WBC. It's just there are fewer countries involved. Like the ballparks are there already. You can get there quickly. It's at a time when people are training for the season anyway. Like logistically, it, it doesn't seem like there are nearly as many challenges associated with this. So I, I think that a lot of them are your correct resolvable. I do wonder if a greater frequency would actually make teams more comfortable with the pitching piece because it wouldn't seem so aberrant or if it would make them less comfortable with the pitching piece. So there, yeah. there is that consideration. Um, here is another one that I can say as someone who was in the press box uh, for Saturday night's USA Great Britain game. If it's every two years, uh, they are going to have to fix the roof at Chase Fields and get more concessions because it was hot and there were no more hot dogs to be found. At one point, Ben, I went downstairs to try to get some food and you could just tell that they weren't 
ready, which I don't understand because don't you know how many tickets you've sold? Don't you, aren't you like, wow, mm-hmm. there's like going to be a lot of people here. We should make sure we have snacks. They're going to yeah. want them. But I go downstairs. One place was like, no more food, drinks only. And then across from them was a stand with a woman yelling just as loud as she could. There's no more water. No water. <laughs> Seems like a problem. She was yeah. just like, I've had it. <laughs> no one seemed like they were having a good time with that. Um, I don't know. In fairness to Chase, I don't know um, how uh, well resolved those issues were when further games were played, but they were they were not prepared. And I was like, oh, boy, everyone coming for uh, USA Mexico tomorrow is I hope they get here early so they can drink exactly one beer if that's what they <laughs> want to do, because it might take them that long to get one. Yeah. But those Arizona infrastructure issues aside, also hearing someone yell in Arizona, no water, we have no <laughs> water just feels didn't feel great, no. Ben, you know, Um but other than that, I agree with you that there there does seem to be a lot about the WBC that would sort of alleviate the concerns that I imagine plague a lot of other international sporting events. And I think if you could get greater clarity about the consistency of baseball in the Olympics, then you could really yeah. just feel comfortable doing right because it sort of comes and goes. We're right. we're in, but we're and not. Now it's and, gone. So the Olympics right. being baseball being out of the Olympics, that's another reason I think why more WBC would be good. Yeah. And I think that, you know, just in terms of at least for the for the guys who play in major league baseball, it is. It does seem to to be a better solution because you're gonna. You're just not getting big leaguers mm-hmm. in the Olympics. Like it's not. Unless it doesn't seem to be a thing that happens very much because of rules and schedule and blah blah blah. So, I I agree with you. I am in for more uh, WBC, and I would just invite uh, major league organizations like. Uh, maybe your pitching would be fine and it, it's okay. Although I don't want to insult <laughs> Lance Lynn because Michael Baum would get mad at me. Yeah. I've been there, but I've thought the same thing, right? Because it, it is, it's only a two week thing as opposed to the World Cup, which is like a month long 48 yeah. team thing. And it's geographically concentrated as opposed to the WBC, which is spread out, which lightens the load on any particular place, which I think is good. I mean, you're getting more multinational bids for these other huge events because it's just so hard for any one country to host. And the WBC already works that way. So I do wonder. You could make the case that having it every four years, or in this case, it's been six years, which I guess uh, maybe that's why they weren't prepared fully for concessions and everything. They haven't done this in a while. So I guess you could say if they did it more often, it would be a a better oiled machine. Like the roof, which would also hopefully be a better oiled (laughs) machine. Exactly. Right. Well, they play games there often. And if it's not, then I guess the WBC isn't going to help. But if you were to hold it more frequently, I, I guess you could say that it would be less exciting, that we're more hyped for it because it's rare and we know we're going to have to wait a while and we've waited a while. I think you could make the opposite case, though. I think you could go in the other direction and say that if it were more frequent, it would be less like, oh, wait, what? what is this again? Oh, it's the WBC, especially because they haven't been doing the WBC that long. There isn't such a, a storied tradition associated with it. So I think if it were more common, if it were every year, like the Caribbean series or something, or if it were just every other year, then it would be normalized. It it would be a a rite of spring. We would all be used to it and expect it. And there would be real rivalries getting built up and players would be on those rosters every year. And 
for some of the countries that don't have big baseball programs and followings. I know they don't have huge budgets, but maybe it would be an additional inducement to people in those countries if your day job is an electrician. If you might get to face Shohei Otani every year instead of every four years, maybe that would generate more interest and more people would want to play with more opportunities for high-level competition. We would all sort of look at it as a, a normal part of the build-up to opening day if you're an MLB fan or just a feature of the baseball calendar if you're a fan of international baseball. So I could see it actually getting people more hyped if it were more regular, if there were just a a more predictable, dependable cadence to it, as opposed to every now and then we remember, oh, right. Yeah. The WBC, we, we do that this year. Yeah. I think that if it is sort of a fixture of the calendar, then it is something that you can kind of look forward to and, and it'll be one of the things that sort of marks the progression toward the season. Yeah. They used to hold the Baseball World Cup, and that was more often. That was, I think, every year for a while, and then every couple of years. It was more often than the WBC, and and that didn't generate the same amount of interest, at least here, because uh, mostly you didn't have professional players participating. You certainly didn't have major leaguers participating. But if you could hold that event on that sort of schedule, I think you could do it for the WBC, too. And I assume teams would resist that MLB teams, right? Because they're already wary of letting their players go and they want to have control over their guys and they want them to be under their oversight and they want them to build up chemistry with their teammates in spring training and they want to sell tickets in spring training too. So they want to have their A lineups out there sometimes. So there might be resistance on the part of the teams, but for baseball as a whole and for the WBC, I, I think it would be good. So really, it, it just comes down to if you think it does increase injury risk. I mean, are we doing it every four years? Because that's just how often you do big international right. sports tournaments. Or is it concern about getting players to participate, which is already a challenge for pitchers, particularly for the U.S.? Or if you think that it does elevate the injury risk, then maybe you wouldn't want to do it more often. But again, we don't really know whether it does. There doesn't seem to be any appreciable, demonstrable difference when it comes to injury rates. And again, if you're planning to do it regularly, then it's just part of your routine. It's part of your ramp up. And maybe it wouldn't be anything out of the, the norm. So... Yeah, I, I'm all for at least every two years. Like, this is fun. Yeah. Why make us wait another four years? Let us get into a rhythm here. Yeah, I agree. I agree, Ben. Okay. All right. If anyone has any counter arguments, uh, please uh, let them be known. But as far as I'm concerned, I, I mean, even like uh, basketball, I was talking to Zach Cram at The Ringer about it. And basketball has the, the FIBA World Cup now, which is a non-Olympics event that's kind of between Olympic tournaments. And so you have that on non-Olympics years or you have uh, Winter Olympics some years and Summer Olympics some years. So if if two years is sort of the regular for having some sort of showcase event, then we could just make the WBC more common. So just uh, give me more of this. That's all I'm saying. We didn't even mention my man, Joey Manessis. What, what are we doing here? We, well, we, I don't know, Ben, because I'm, I G-chatted you twice during did. that game and was yeah. like, Joey, and then again, and then you didn't respond. And I was temporarily worried. I was like, do I have to find a new podcast host? Is he like ascended to a new plane? Yeah. So yes, sing, sing the ballad of Joey. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I'm not really very tribal when it comes to the WBC. I mean, I, the US team is fun. The lineup is incredible and right. everything, but I, I'm not really investing my my hopes in a patriotic 
fashion. I'm not not patriotic, but I just enjoy seeing the talent on all the teams play. Yeah. So it's not like I was conflicted, like, oh, my man Joey Manessis hit two home runs, but it was against Team USA. Eh, I don't really care. I just am happy that Joey yeah. Manessis hit two big home runs. I think he might be good. I think he might yeah. actually be pretty good. So, I think he might be good, yeah, you know? Not like last year good, but but good. Like he hit he hits the ball hard. He hits the ball hard. Let's let's try to peg it. He's he's not just good by virtue of being on the Nationals. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Right? Sure. Like he's not comparatively good by virtue of his situation. Like he might just be like a a pretty decent hitter. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So tons of fun stuff there in MLB news. I, I guess there were some extensions, right? It's extension season. So we had a Corbin Carroll eight-year yeah. extension with the Diamondbacks. We had a Kiebert Ruiz eight-year extension with the Nationals. I guess each of them has options involved that could make them varying numbers of years and, and amounts of money. But Carroll's surpasses Michael Harris's extension to be the largest by any player with fewer than 100 days of Major League service time and no foreign playing experience this tis the season for that yeah. sort of thing so we will probably see more extensions signed before opening day yeah um uh, different amounts of money also based on <laughs> yes <laughs> the relative perceptions of those guys's careers going forward but mm-hmm. yeah i mean i gotta say as a person who's um from seattle and whose closest big league park is chase uh roof open or no mm-hmm. it's pretty exciting to to be able to count on the fact that I'm just going to see uh, Corbin Carroll ro- roaming around out there for the next while. Well, that's yep. pretty cool. So, yep. and, and I'm excited for Kiebert Ruiz too, but I see him less often is the thing. And you know, right. I'm not from where he's from. So it's, it's pretty, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sure that this is a thing that actual prospect evaluators uh, and writers experience regularly, but it's like, I watched that guy play in high school, you know, and now he has a hundred million dollars. <laughs> so that, that's wild. You know, that guy's home field was like 10 minutes from my old house. And now he's just like going to be the face of that franchise for a long time. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. There is some question about how we will be watching Corbin Carroll broadcast wise, because mm. there've also been some reports about the looming diamond sports bankruptcy, which uh, yeah. sounds like could happen this week, right? It's been expected for some time, and it sounds like MLB is prepared to step in and broadcast games for at least four of the 14 teams that are under Diamond and Bally, the Diamondbacks being one of them, also the Reds, the Guardians, the Padres, I believe. And it sounds like MLB, just as a stopgap, is potentially going to broadcast these games for free. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like there's got to be some kind of catch. Again, it's just, yeah. it's a temporary fix, but it sounds like you will maybe be able to just watch these things on MLB TV. I, I don't know whether there will be any sort of blackouts. I would assume not at that point, but they're trying to also work out other deals for the other teams that are covered by Diamond and Bally's to take over those local broadcasts and either stream them for free in the local markets or just negotiate with cable companies for lower contracts. So 
they're just trying to figure this out on the fly and the timing is probably not ideal because <laughs> the season's about to start and this is yeah. all happening now so this is a developing situation and potentially like a paradigm shifting situation yeah. like i mean this could be the biggest mlb news that is happening these days it's just it's hard to see exactly what the fallout from it will be this is not how we hoped and expected that the blackouts would finally fall but yeah this is, this is happening so I, I don't know how the economics of it will work out long term and i don't think anyone knows but mlb is just sort of scrambling to make sure that there is a way to watch these games it is like in some ways reassuring to me that in the face of um, a real necessity to just figure it out that there seems to be a capacity to do that right Mm -hmm. but then you know you put yourself in the position if you're them where we're all going to remember we're all just going to remember so what do we do about that yeah and what I have heard and other experts and media watchers is that basically there's a, a long-term concern in the sense that sports uh, sports leagues have been getting a pretty sweet deal when it comes to revenue from RSNs and from cable packages because historically speaking, people who don't really pay attention to sports have been subsidizing this investment, right? So it right. was just part of your cable right. package. Even if you weren't watching, it was just priced in and everyone paid for that. <laughs> and that was sort of the arrangement for a while, right. which worked out as long as it lasted. But now that people are constantly cutting the cord and the subscriber bases are shrinking, now you don't want to pay to license that stuff and subscribers don't want to pay. Now they end up subscribing to maybe several streaming services instead, and then they lament that they can't all just get it in a package and it's the same anyway. But we know what we're doing with that, though. We're not like, oh, wow, if only, you know, we're not like the tech bros who accidentally invent (laughs) the bus. That's not what's going on. We we are aware of the limitations of our choice. But like, where else am I? supposed to watch poker face ben i have to subscribe to peacock i I still feel better about it even if i even as i rack up more and more subscription services and and charges as long as i'm opting into something i want to watch as opposed to just being saddled with many 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 channels that i don't want Uh, of course there's tons of content i'm not interested on uh, interested in in each of those streaming services too but still if i'm deciding that i want this network i feel a little bit better even if the charges kind of come out to the same thing anyway the long-term concern is that there won't be a way to get as rich an arrangement just because if you have people having to opt in to watch a league or to watch a team, well, there are certainly plenty of hardcore fans of name your MLB team here that will sign up for a monthly subscription service to watch that team. But does the math work out? Can you charge enough? Can you bleed those people dry enough? Can you extract enough money from them that it makes up for all of the many people who were never watching, but were paying for it anyway, right? So does the amount of revenue that you're generating equalize? And it seems like there are a lot of concerns that maybe not. Now, of course, you still have sponsorships and you have advertising revenue that in theory you're raking in there. But Either you have to jack the prices way up on the people who are already in your audience to make up for all of the people who were subsidizing that audience, even though they were not in the audience themselves, or you just will price people out and you'll, you know, you'll cater to the people who are already in your audience, but you won't attract as many people perhaps, or 
you might just make less money ultimately. It's possible, right? I mean, we talk about how these revenue figures, they go up and up and up and the franchise figures go up and up and up and that may still continue to happen, but there's a little more doubt at least, right? And I think that probably owners will use this as an excuse more so than it is, you know, and even if they are making a little less revenue, it doesn't mean that they're ruined all of a sudden, but they will probably describe it in those terms. But it is possible that what has been just going up and up and up uninterrupted may plateau or even shrink. That's kind of the concern. So I guess MLB is a trying to ensure continuity of service so you can actually watch the games. That would be good. And also trying to develop some sort of solution that hopefully is more consumer friendly in the sense that fewer blackouts and we can actually watch the games, but also may mean that we're paying more potentially for those of us who are actually interested in paying just to try to make up for it. So it's all very uncertain and I, I don't know exactly what will happen and whether we'll see more live sports broadcast on these streaming services, which is something that MLB has been doing as have other sports or whether we will just see the sports leagues operate their own services and MLB TV will just be yeah. the one stop shop and and that'll be everything on there. And we've seen some of that with other services too. So it could go in either direction and I don't think anyone knows which way it will go. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, having just said that I, I use streaming services and don't have cable, like I, I do worry a little bit about, um, you know, having to explain to our grandparents or parents or elderly relatives, like how to find the stuff that they're Mm -hmm. used to watching. And so having a a purely streaming, um, option like is fine in theory, but I hope that there is a lot of thought given to making that experience as sort of frictionless as possible, because if it, if they don't, we're all going to have to take a lot of phone calls from people who are like, how do I find yep. my shows? Yep. You know? Um, and that's fine because we should talk mm-hmm. to our people more. Um, but it it is, I think that there, that is a sort of important thing to keep in mind. Like there's going to be varying um, sort of comfort with that across the fan base. And so any efforts that can be made to sort of ease, ease those who are not currently subscribed to like 10 different streaming services into that experience, I think is worthwhile. I don't mean to make old people sound like they can't figure stuff out, but like, I don't, I don't understand TikTok, right? I don't understand it. I'm 36. So I think technology catches up to you quicker than you expect it to. And there are people who are just used to being able to click over to, you know, whatever to Bally or Root Sports or whatever it is and find the team that they like best. And so, you know, you want to make sure that you can sit sort of replicate that experience as seamlessly as possible so that people don't get frustrated and go, eh, I guess I'm not watching them this year. You know, that would be bad. Yeah. Especially with MLB having a a more mature audience, let's say, (laughs) than some other sports. Yeah, And eventually everyone will be on board with streaming and, you know, that will just be the thing that that the entire TV watching uh, public has accustomed itself to. And it won't be the, the new sort of scary thing that you have to use some different device for. But yeah, there might be a transition there. And I guess it's easier in some respects if it's just all on MLB TV and you won't, and you just have to say, right. this is it. It's the one app. It's the one thing. Right. It's all there. Just go there. As opposed to saying some of it's on Peacock and some of it's on Apple TV Plus and some of it's there and some of it's there. 
I guess the downside, though, is that you're not going to get discovery from folks who are just subscribed to a service for something else. And then they stumble across MLB and say, oh, I'll check out this baseball thing. That won't really happen if it's just a baseball only product. So they're just upsides and downsides. It's just a it's a big shift. I mean, the shift to RSNs and that model was big and has altered the landscape of baseball and the economics of baseball over the past couple of decades. And now we may be heading for another shift. And that doesn't mean that baseball is dying or anything. And we've certainly heard that refrain before, but it's a, it's an opportunity and it's also potential pitfalls. So we'll see. Yeah. And I guess we should acknowledge a, a little bit of uh not so fun international baseball news. Maybe shall we just uh, close the book, perhaps, on Trevor Bauer? Yeah. Yeah, sure. We yeah. can just be done Trevor now. Trevor Bauer going to NPB. So he signed yeah. with the Bay Stars, uh, the team out of Yokohama. Yeah. It's a one-year deal for what four million. Of course, uh, he's also making his Dodgers salary. The Dodgers are still paying him, having cut him, but he's still entitled to that money. So this is extra money on top of that. And look, it's not a huge shock, right? When we talked about potential futures for Trevor Bauer on earlier episodes, we noted if he wanted to continue pitching, he would probably pitch somewhere, right? In some international league that has given chances to many other players who were disgraced and drummed out of Major League Baseball, whether it's uh, Roberto Asuna or Addison Russell or Josh Lukey or, you know, many others uh, who were not offered spots on MLB teams anymore and went overseas and guys have gone to Mexico and Korea and Japan. And it it almost seems like from those leagues and countries perspective, it's like what you did overseas. It's just like almost forgotten. It's like it didn't happen here. So uh, blank slate, I guess. And you can come play for us. And if you do something bad on our shores, then we will cut you and get rid of you. But it's uh, almost like some sort of, well, it didn't happen on this continent or in this country, then uh, we will just welcome you in here. So I guess the good news is that Trevor Bauer's not pitching an MLB, right? Which was always a possibility. I mean, there was always some chance that especially as we got closer to opening day that some team would just take a shot and say, we think he'll still be good and we won't have to live with the fallout from this for as long before the season starts. Well, that didn't happen. I'm sure he pursued all his options here and clearly the door was not open. So if you're just a fan of MLB, you will not be seeing Trevor Bauer and you will not be hearing about Trevor Bauer much anymore. Yeah, I I I'm glad that like all of all 30 clubs sort of I guess it would have been 29 cuz if the Dodgers hadn't wanted to let him go, they wouldn't have, but um you know, I'm glad that that there was sort of a holding of the line there. I do always feel weird when we have this like collective sigh of relief like, "Oh, he's over there now." And it's like, mm. "Well, <laughs> That seems, you know, I don't know. It's like, what a what a terrible export. Yeah. Um, <laughs> feels like we should face sanctions. So, um, but yeah, I, I am relieved to not have to spend much more time uh, thinking about that guy. Um, I do know that there are a lot of players not in his same position, obviously, but we've seen particularly in the last couple of years, guys right. come back. 
um, who have a couple of good seasons in, you know, Japan or Korea and then find their way back onto a big league roster. Um, and I don't, you know, I can't speak to whatever strategy he might be employing here. If that's part of the planner, the hope, uh, on his part to find his way back onto a yeah. big league roster in the event that he pitches well, but I hope not. So would like to be able to never talk about that guy again. <laughs> yeah, it may just be a short term. I want to pitch and this is the highest level league that will let me do it. Or yeah, yeah there might be a, a long game here. Who knows how he will pitch after the extended layoff that he has had. If yeah. he is still effective there, then yeah, I guess there's some risk that he could get sort of laundered through yeah. NPP in a way. Like if he stays out of trouble there and yeah. pitches well for a year or two, then I guess you could have some MLB team decide, well, he's too good not to give him a chance and he paid his dues and he wandered in the wilderness for a while. Not that NPP is the wilderness. It's a great league. But if uh, that were to happen, then I guess that's the potential risk here. But, you know, he was always going to get a job somewhere. Unfortunately, I, I think that was always yeah. bound to happen. So now we know where it is and it's not here. Yeah. All right. So we have a couple previews to get to, but we do want to just put a, a PSA out there. So we are looking for a theme song for Effectively Wild, yeah. which is not something we've ever really had. Just a, a straight up theme song associated with the show. And we've decided that we would like one. Most podcasts do have one. And we would like your help. We have a lot of musically inclined listeners and listeners who are in bands or are musical artists themselves. And in the past, we have done a, a Stat Blast song exercise where listeners just uh, made their own covers of the Stat Blast song. And then for weeks or months, we played those covers <laughs> yeah. and <laughs> there were some really incredible ones and people seemed to have fun with that. So we would like to do the same thing with a theme song, like an intro song that we would play at the beginning of an episode. And maybe we'll have sort of like a Battle of the Bands style thing. If you make a theme song for Effectively Wild and it's uh, reasonably <laughs> listenable. <laughs> <laughs> we we did have some trepidation about how we should say this that we want everyone to know because it's like, I don't want to, if you know, people put time into making a thing, you want to acknowledge it, but also... Yeah. Yeah, if it, if it will not make our audience's ears bleed yeah. somehow, <laughs> then we would like to play your intro song submission. So we will try to play just about everyone's. We'll see how many we get, but we will, I think, ultimately pick one or maybe we will have a, a crowdsourced aspect to this and that will be a component and we'll collectively pick one. But we're hoping to do it this month by opening day, by the end of March, that would be great. Yeah. And we're looking for basically a minute of audio, roughly, give or take, and say 30 seconds or so before the podcast comes in, and then maybe 30 seconds that could play under us doing our intro. So it could be instrumental, or it could just be something that you could quiet. And it could be whatever you want. I think it should have some sort of lyrics uh, of some kind. It, it should be identifiable as an effectively wild yes. intro song, although hopefully evergreen so that I don't know if we were to change something about the format of the show or or do a new segment or, or retire an old segment or something that it, it wouldn't be immediately obsolete. I don't know. It, 
it can be any style. It can be any approach. Uh, right. We will leave it up to the creativity of our audience. And then if we ultimately pick one to be our regular theme song, then uh, there will be some kind of cash prize or or licensing fee or, or some sort we will we yeah. will purchase the the song from you i, I don't know exactly yeah. what the terms of that will be yeah. we'll we'll figure it out but there'll be something so at least we will play your song and then if we uh pick one to be the permanent theme song then we will work out something so that we can compensate you for that yeah i just look forward to hearing like all of the cool stuff that people come up with because We've said it many, many times. There are a lot of uh, musically inclined people, as you mentioned, and just like so many different jobs and kinds of folks listen to the show. And yeah. so there tends to be a, a real range in terms of how people interpret prompts like that. And I look forward to to hearing them. So, yeah. All right. We'll have fun with it. And uh, hopefully sometime in the next couple of weeks, we can get that sorted by the end of the month. If you can send in your submissions and we will work through them, that would be great. And you can just email them to us at podcast at fangrass.com and let us know if you have any questions about the specifics. So we have our usual trivia exercise today. So the two teams that we are previewing are the Rays and the Tigers. So the questions three, as usual, are which franchise has the better head-to-head -head record against the other, which has the upper hand, Rays or Tigers, in their head-to-head -head matchups, which hitter who has played for both the Rays and the Tigers has the highest war, which pitcher who has played for both the Rays and the Tigers has the highest war, that's career war, can have played for the Tigers and Rays at any point, and then lastly, who were the first pitcher and hitter, respectively, to play or have played for both of these franchises. So we will answer that at the end of the episode along with the Pass Blast. And we have a little mea culpa here. Yeah. I guess, is it a, a Nostra culpa? I don't know. What's a, a culpa with oh. two people doing the culpa-ing? But, <laughs> but mm, a, a, a few listeners have pointed out that our guest on the last episode on the Pirates preview, who had also joined us for two previous Pirates previews, has been filing stories in the midst of a work stoppage at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. We were not aware of that situation at the paper. And if we had been, we would have talked to someone else for that segment. So... When a couple of listeners let us know about this after the episode was posted, we asked our guest for an explanation, and he shared some details about his personal situation and family life and the way the strike started that led him and some others to act as they did. But as we try to convey when we talk about baseball, we believe labor solidarity to be extremely important. Yeah. So we've both contributed to the strike fund for the workers at the Post-Gazette who are not working right now, and we will link to that page in the show notes so you can find out more about the issues at stake there, and apologies for the oversight on our part. Yeah. And now we will get to our new previewers. Don't believe this will be an issue with either of them. <laughs> we will first be talking to Adam Barry of MLB.com, who covers the race, and after that, we will talk to Cody Stavenhagen, who covers the Detroit Tigers for The Athletic. 
Fangraph's playoff odds have the Rays at 86.5 wins with a 22% chance to win the division and a 65% chance to make the playoffs. The Tigers projected for 70.4 wins with a 1.7% chance to win the division and a 2.8% chance to make the playoffs. So now that we've whetted your appetites and or depressed you, we will be right back. ready to preview and we begin today with the Tampa Bay Rays and with Adam Berry who covers the Rays for MLB.com and has just returned from paternity leave so congratulations Adam and thank you for joining us <laughs> on what probably a tough time to schedule while you're still getting in the swing of things again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate you guys working around, uh, you know, my schedule, the Rays schedule, my new daughter's schedule and all that. So it's yeah. great to be back. Well, having been a father of a newborn daughter not too long ago, I know that uh, it was probably tough for you to to keep track of what was going on in spring training. So uh, I'm sure you've gotten up to speed quickly. So we will talk, I guess, uh, about the Rays, who, unlike you, have not had a lot of new additions to their family. How's that for a segue? (laughs) Nice, nice, nice. fantastic. (laughs) I think they really had just one free agent signing maybe this winter. And when you did your preview of the offseason, one of your big five questions was, is there a big splash in store? And I guess the answer in retrospect was not really, except by Rays standards, because Zach Eflin, actually the biggest free agent contract that the Rays have ever given out, right? Inflation unadjusted, which is uh, pretty surprising, probably, but it is the Rays after all. So why don't we start there? What convinced the Rays to make what is for them, I suppose, a sizable free agent investment in Eflin? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. And believe me, this was certainly not the uh, big splash that I had in mind when I was uh, (laughs) writing that preview either. But it's yeah, the largest contract and a free agent contract in franchise history at three years and forty million. Uh, they like a lot of things that Eflin does. Um, they like the fact that he throws strikes. They like the fact that he reduced or limited hard contact last season. Uh, doesn't walk a lot of guys. Has pretty good extension if you look at some of the more advanced metrics. And uh, I think they like the person a lot too, which is something that they you know for a team that's as analytically minded and statistically inclined as the Rays are, that's something that they definitely. Uh, consider a lot is the the person that he is. And I've heard nothing but rave reviews in the last day and a half back in camp about the guy that Zach Eflin (laughs) is. But, you know, he's essentially filling the spot that was held last season by Corey Kluber. And you look at what Kluber did, and overall it wasn't, you know, tremendous results. ERA wasn't anything special or anything like that. But he threw strikes. He was pretty consistently going to work five or six innings uh, a night, set up the bullpen well, and then just be a good kind of veteran type example for the rest of the rotation because it's a group of pretty young starters otherwise. So I think they like all of that with Eflin. And then, you know, the fact that for him, it's relatively local. He grew up in the Orlando area. Family is very important to him. He wanted to be relatively close to home. So uh, I I think they're pretty optimistic that, you know, getting that guy, uh, basically the guy that he was in front of a better defense and a more pitcher friendly home ballpark with his strike throwing is going to work out pretty well. Uh, And we'll see what else they have in store as far as what they Tweak with him as the Rays tend to do once he gets in the lab with Kyle Snyder. Uh, I would suspect that we'll probably see him take a step forward. 
So they have him as an addition, but as a temporary loss. Uh, another good segue. Good <laughs> say. Um, they will once again, at least for the immediate term, be without Tyler Glasnow, who I think everyone was very excited to see come back, and then has suffered a strained oblique. So, what is the latest timeline for Glasnow? And I know that your exposure to what he was doing early in camp was probably limited, but what is your sense of how he was looking before he went down with the oblique? Yeah, he looked like Tyler Glass now from everything I understand. And I, I think the thing that really stood out and that did enhance that excitement that you were talking about is how good he looked when he came back uh, late last season and in that postseason start. I mean, he looked like a complete monster, like the guy that you've gotten used to seeing uh, when he was healthy before. The fastball was, you know, of the upper 90s. The curveball was nasty. That slider he added in, in 2021 was working for him. He was throwing strikes. Um, so that is a big loss. But, you know, he's probably looking at probably mid to late April, tend to kind of take the under on injury comeback. So probably uh, late April would be my guess at this point. And, and the way that they're kind of optimistically looking at it is that coming back from Tommy John, you know, didn't pitch a lot of innings last season, you're going to have to limit his workload regardless. So this is kind of a, a way to do so, uh, you know, before you have to worry about taking him out of games early, that you're already cutting into the part of the season. So now rather than having to, you know, skip starts or whatever it may be, you can kind of, once he is back and healthy, kind of let him loose. And I, I think that is a pretty exciting idea for the Rays. And they're a little bit more uh, comfortable with it this season and able to handle it because they do have some pretty intriguing rotation depth uh, behind him, not just, you know, obviously Shane McClanahan, Drew Rasmus, and Jeffrey Springs uh, and Zach Eflin. But, you know, you could see Yanni Chirinos, uh, who himself came back last season from a number of arm injuries. Luis Patino, who it seems like is almost a forgotten guy who was a top prospect not very long ago at all. Uh, Josh Fleming, who himself was pretty highly regarded as well. Uh, so they have the depth to handle it. But obviously, I mean, it's, a, it's an entirely different team in rotation with Tyler Glass now back and healthy. Yeah. And of course, Shane Baz uh, had Tommy John surgery in September, too. So that's a big loss. And mm -hmm. I know that with the race of rotation and bullpen, those concepts are sort of amorphous. Right. And, uh, you know, Jeffrey Springs was a reliever and then he was a starter and he was <laughs> successful as that, too. So you never know who's going to make that transition with this team. So. McClanahan had some shoulder issues late last season, right? But he was great when he was healthy. So what are the expectations for pitchers who could really step up, at least in the absence of Boz and in the temporary absence of Glasnow? Is, is there another Springs-type uh, sort of conversion success in store or, or Patino, as you said, who could really take a step forward? Yeah, maybe not a conversion, but I think some of those depth guys that I mentioned, I mean, if you told me that one of that trio of... Uh, Chirinos, Patino, or Fleming took a huge step forward as a really consistent starter this season. I would not be surprised at all, and it could be any one of them. I would be completely guessing at this point, and it could go anyway. And I believe that Patino has obviously the raw talent, uh, electric fastball, great breaking ball. Uh, you know, has the delivery and everything to make it work. He just hasn't so far at the big league level with the Rays. And injuries played a part last year and everything. Uh, he was throwing 97. I believe he touched 97 in his last spring outing, and he said like he hasn't thrown 97 in spring. So that has to be considered a good sign that he's healthy. Uh, you've heard a lot of good things in camp, you know, even since I've been here back already, about his work ethic and how focused and motivated he looks coming into camp. So that's certainly a guy that I could see taking a step forward. And then another one would be their top prospect, Taj Bradley, who's uh, just optioned uh, yesterday. He's likely to begin the season at AAA Durham. Uh, also electric stuff, really good kid. Everyone's uh, really impressed by his work ethic and uh, just the way that he thinks. And, you know, he could be another 
a guy from within who would be a big addition to the rotation at some point, uh, probably more likely this summer, just because he doesn't have a ton of time in AAA. But that's the kind of guy that I think you can pretty safely bet on as well. So Ben mentioned that the team didn't do much by way of free agent additions, but they did do a number of extensions. You talked about Springs briefly, but if I can pivot to the bullpen for a second, talk talk to us about Pete Fairbanks. First of all, why does Pete Fairbanks always look so nervous? You don't have to answer that, but he does always look quite nervous when he's on the mound. And that made more sense in 2021 than it did <laughs> last year. Ha <laughs> we're really, really leaning on these segues today. Um, he had a superlative 2022. His ERA was just above one. His FIP was below one. So what sort of motivated the extension there? He's a guy who is a little bit older. He has had injury issues in the past. How did this come about? I think he is a guy who loves playing here. He is very much like a Rays pitching success story. Um, You know, every time that they've clinched the playoff spot uh, four years in a row since he came over in 2019, he has gone out of his way to find Eric Neander in the champagne celebration or whatever it was in 2020 and say, thank you for trading for me. He loves it here. They love having him. He obviously has incredible stuff, the big fastball, the breaking ball. He's a guy who's comfortable pitching uh, late in games, uh, somebody who can work in the ninth inning or obviously the, the way the Rays use their bullpen anytime in high leverage. So I think it just kind of made sense as a, as a fit for them wanting to stay together uh, and knock out some of the you know, potentially contentious arbitration uh, type stuff and negotiations. Just let Pete kind of focus on baseball uh, rather than focusing on the business side of it. It's a pretty good deal from his end just to have that financial security for a guy who's had Tommy John surgery twice. You know, maybe that's why he looks nervous. I'm kidding. He's <laughs> he's actually one of the more confident players I've been around. I think it's just like a very manic energy that that takes place when he gets on the mound. That, that's a that's probably a better way to yeah, describe just... it. <laughs> Resting, nervous, yeah. or yeah. it's certainly intense. I think with the with the crazy eyes and everything. Yeah, uh, uh, but no, I, I think a lot of their extensions too kind of came about as a result of the fact that they didn't do a lot this off season. Yeah. They Eric Neander kind of mentioned that they had a little bit of financial flexibility that they used to kind of keep this core uh, further in place. And it's something that they've done really over the last year plus or so. You look at the the Wander extension, uh, Yandi signing Eflin for three years, Brandon Lau, obviously a couple years before this. They really like this group and the core of it, and they want to keep it together for a couple more years to see if they can you know, finally push it through to win a World Series rather than just making it to it like they did in 2020 or early playoff exits like they've had the last couple of years. So, you know, there were a lot of kind of motivating factors to it. The desire for continuity, um, Fairbanks comfort with the Rays, the Rays comfort with Fairbanks, and the same can be said for, for Springs and Yadi Diaz as well. So we should talk a little bit about the offense, which was not a strength, right? It was, uh, well, it was a strength relative to the next team that we're about to talk about, the Tigers, in part because of the Meadows-Paredes trade that the Rays made with the Tigers. Isak Paredes uh, would have led the Tigers in home runs (laughs) if he had stayed there and hit the same number of home runs. But that's, again, more reflection of the Tigers, which we will talk about. But the Rays had sort of a middle-of-the-pack offense. It was good enough. But where are the areas where it could improve either with better health or better performance? It's a little bit of both, but better health is the big thing. I mean, you look, Brandon Lau played 65 games last season due to various back issues and really wasn't himself even when he could play. Talked to him yesterday and asked him to just kind of explain the difference between how he feels this spring compared to last season. And he said, well, it doesn't hurt when I swing anymore. I said, well, that's good. So that's that's a huge thing because he is basically the left-handed kind of middle of the order bat that they need hit 39 home runs drove in 99 runs in 2021 
uh, when they scored, what, about 200 more runs than they did last season. And you could point to Brandon Lau as a big reason uh, for that change. Wander Franco obviously is, you know, the face of the franchise basically now. He was limited by uh, injuries. He looked like he invented the game last April. Then legs started to kind of give out on him a little bit due to various injuries. Then he had the hamate fracture not long after he came back, and that can stick with you. He was he was still fine. I mean, you're talking about a disappointing 117 OPS plus. Like that's that's pretty good for a 21 year old. But you want him healthy. You want Brandon Lau healthy, and then you need to see steps forward from a guy like Josh Lowe, uh, who has been apparently one of the talks of camp uh, here so far. He looks a lot more confident, a lot more comfortable taking good swings, taking good at bats. He's a guy who could again answer. Uh, the need for a left-handed bat that they weren't able to get this offseason. Um, heard some excitement about Luke Rayleigh as well, uh, the way that he's looked. He's a guy that they got last spring, and you know I think he played 20-something games up here, but the fact that they held on to him uh, when he was out of minor league options all offseason and didn't really even play kind of their waiver claim game that they usually do to keep him, uh, I think says a lot about their belief in him and maybe what their models uh, have in store for him. So those are the guys that really stand out. I think, you, I mean, basically you go across the board and aside from maybe Yandy Diaz and Harold Ramirez, I think it's probably fair to expect more from just about everybody who's coming back, even Paredes. I mean, he had 20 home runs, but this is a guy in the minors who was known for getting on base, uh, higher average and everything, and he hit 205 with the 304 OBP. So there's more there as well, I think it's fair to say. So this is going to be sort of a new look outfield in some ways, and that this will be the first time in a long time that we haven't seen Kevin Kiermeyer patrolling center field uh, for the trap. Is is Jose Siri viewed as sort of their long-term solution there, or do you imagine that there might be other guys who sort of filter through that outfield picture? He's definitely the solution this season. It's great timing by you, Meg, because I talked to one person this morning in the clubhouse, and it was Jose Siri, talking about the fact that Kevin Cash told him this offseason, you're the guy in center field to start the season. So uh, it's a huge confidence boost for him as a guy who's kind of bounced around and hasn't really been given a ton of extended opportunity. Also a guy who is just really elite defensively. I mean, you look at some of the some of the metrics. I think it was uh, 15 outs above average last season. One of the strongest outfield arms, 95th percentile, according to StatCast, and one of the fastest runners in baseball. This is a guy with I mean, the Rays have a really high bar is for who can play center field for them, considering Kevin Kiermaier starting, started on opening day there for the last eight years. And they think Jose Siri can not only do it, but do it well. So he's definitely the short-term uh, solution heading into this season. And, you know, if he sticks and really proves that he can be that guy, then I think they'd be happy to keep him around in that role going forward. But you know, it's the Rays. They also have a very deep farm system, um, potentially of guys who could come up and eventually play that role. They have uh, some guys down there. Greg Jones is a former first-round pick who just started uh, playing a little bit of center field in addition to shortstop in camp. So Siri's the guy for now, but they'll definitely keep their options open moving forward if, say, Siri is not able to uh, hit enough kind of in that Kiermaier way where it, it makes his defense worth it out there. It seems like a lot of the problem for the Rays, if you can even call it a problem, it's the quintessential good problem to have, right, of course, is that the Rays just seem to have too many players at some positions and they've had roster crunch at times and they've also just had sort of a stack of players at similar positions, whether you have Franco and then you have Taylor Walls and then you have Vidal Bruhan and just all of these options that on other teams might have more of an opening, but here maybe have to wait their turn. So 
How do they see the hierarchy of those guys? Where does Walls fit in for now and Bruhan in the future? Yeah, so it seems like third base to start the season is going to be a, a mix of Paredes and Taylor Walls. Walls obviously being a great defender pretty much wherever you put him. He's a natural shortstop. He is their best defensive shortstop, but obviously you're not going to knock Wander off of that position. Uh, so you're most likely to see Paredes and Walls at third. You know, Walls at shortstop when Wander gets a day off. Maybe Walls at Second, uh, when Brandon Lau gets a day off his feet, uh, Walls is an especially valuable guy given his range and defense in a post-shift environment, I think. Um, so he definitely has a role to play, uh, you know, as kind of a utility type to start the season. Bruhan, I'm not sure. Honestly, he, we discovered this offseason he has a fourth option, so he could be sent to Durham to start the year. My guess is that's where he winds up. He just hasn't hit enough at the big league level yet uh, to really prove that he's uh, deserving of a spot. You'd love to see it work out for him, especially with some of the new rules. As a guy with his speed, he should be a really valuable player, but he, he's another one who just has to hit enough because you know the Rays are going to use uh, you know, a utility player. He can play anywhere. I'm sure they'd love to have that on the bench, but you just need a little bit more bat from him, and he's he's kind of yet to prove it. So he's he's kind of that odd man out for now, it looks like. So given that sort of musical chairs that they're likely to play among the guys who can play a position, this is maybe a strange question, but do you think that we're going to see Curtis Mead at any point this year? Because he certainly can check off the, the bat piece of it, but still seems relatively positionless. So is he someone who might work his way up to the majors? Yeah, I think so. Probably this summer uh, when he was sent out yesterday as well, Cash actually said this morning that he was maybe even better offensively than he'd been heard about. And considering he's a top 100 prospect and either the first or second best in their system, <laughs> that obviously speaks very highly of what they saw from him this spring. Uh, he's worked a lot at third. I wouldn't be surprised. He's worked some at second. I wouldn't be surprised if he does maybe a little bit of work. Uh, at first base just to give him that versatility uh, you know so he could play wherever he's needed when he comes up and I'm sure there would be DH at bats to go around right now you probably look at Harold Ramirez as the guy uh, slated for most of of those at bats he had a nice season last year when he was healthy but given Meade's ceiling and the potential that he can make you know solid contact and really hit for a little bit more power which is something they need I think there's definitely going to be an opportunity for Meade when he proves that he's ready. And there's been some discussion of an extension for him, too, right? We've seen other extensions in recent days for young players, but players who've made the majors, at least in their cases. So have you heard anything about that? I cannot say that was one of the first things that I uh, had on my radar when I came back the other day. But I, I saw the report and it would certainly make sense, you know, again, talking about wanting to lock up his core and lock up. Uh, you know, young players who are going to be here for a little while and somebody who then wouldn't have to worry about, all right, am I going up? Am I going down? Is there a spot for me? Uh, you know, what is my future here as I get into the arbitration years? It would certainly make a lot of sense to extend uh, somebody like him or a Josh Lowe. And I, I would not be surprised if those talks continue uh, throughout the spring. And then again, something they revisit in the off season. That's something the race tend to do is they'll, you know, they'll bring it up in the spring. And if it works out great, if not, they can revisit in the off season, they can come back next spring just with a better idea of uh, what each side is looking for. And, and the fact that Mead is a guy that they've considered should speak pretty highly as far as what they, what they think about him and his role in their future. We talked about him a bit with the, the discussion of the injury stuff, but it, it feels a little odd to have not headlined this pros this podcast with Franco, who is still the only 80 future value prospect that Fangraphs has ever had and had, you know, I think a really impressive rookie year and then a year that was compromised by injury somewhat uh, last year. So where, in terms of his performance at the plate, what are your expectations for him in this season? And how do you imagine he's going to sort of right the ship to look like the guy that he was when he was a prospect? 
Yeah, I would certainly expect more of 2021 than last season. Again, not like last season was bad. I mean, right. he struck out 33 times and walked 26. He's 21 years old. Yeah. Like, it's crazy to think of the expectations that we had for him yeah. going into last season. I think I one of my hot take predictions or whatever we had to file at the beginning of the season was that he could be an MVP candidate. And that didn't seem outrageous because right. you look at what he's done so far. He's played two seasons, 153 games, and I think it's about six of war. If you can just get that over the course of the season, he's one of the most valuable players in the American League and therefore a candidate for something like that. And everything I've heard is that he's at the WBC right now, but everything I heard is he came into camp really motivated, uh, got his body in not in better shape. He's in fantastic shape, but maybe a little bit more limber, a little bit more lean, one of those kind of cliche spring training stories where he focused more on flexibility than strength. Uh, but with Wander, I think it's really important because this is a guy who plays at pretty full-out intensity. And one of the issues he had last season was, you know, when he was dealing with the leg issues, the Rays kind of telling him, dial it back a little bit. And that's just not something he's really dealt with before and had to play and had to kind of you know, modify the way that he plays. And I think that affected him a little bit mentally as well as physically. So um, the expectations are still really high here. Um, it is funny, like you said, that we didn't headline this with Wander Franco, considering the talk about him really over the last couple of years. Um, but I think... Hopes are still really high, um, and I think they expect him to be a, a really central part of everything they do for a long time going forward. What was behind Yandy Diaz's big season last year at the plate? Because historically, I guess the problem has been ground balls, right? Meg refers to uh, big, beefy players as beef boys, and we were calling him ground beef for a while because he <laughs> kept hitting the ball on the ground. I'm pretty sure that nickname didn't catch on. Because we don't have self-respect. Yeah. So that's the other important piece of Not that. sure anyone else in the world has ever used that nickname to refer to Yandy. Diaz, but... Well, I will be now, so thank you. <laughs> okay. Well, he hit fewer grounders last year. He, he didn't turn into a, a fly ball guy all of a sudden, but did he just kind of cross some tipping point where he got the ball up enough, or was it something else? What changes did he make, or did the team help him make? Yeah, I think it was just a little bit of comfort and everything kind of going his way. He was healthy until the very end of the season. Um, he was hitting the ball hard, as he usually does. Yeah, like you said, it was just finding holes, getting the ball in the air just a little bit more. He would not say that there was anything significant that changed. It was just kind of everything going his way for what turned out to be really a career year. And I think a lot of it was just comfort with who he is. You know, we spent so much time with player development, player improvement, trying to change guys and, you know, make them into something else. But I, I think the Rays really like having just the best version of Yandy Diaz, which is the guy that they saw last season. And, you know, that maybe that has more ground balls than you'd expect from a guy with the biceps his size. Like, but you're also going to get a guy who walks more than he strikes out, gets on base in a 400 clip last season. That's really valuable if you put him atop the lineup. And that's somewhere I think he liked hitting as well. The idea that he could kind of set the table and didn't have to feel like he had to hit for power or anything. He could just do what he does best, which is get on base. And uh, he did that really well at a really high level until that uh, shoulder injury at the end of the season. So the catching tandem is in some ways not different, but in some ways different from what the Rays have had in the past. Obviously, Zanino didn't play a ton last year because of thoracic outlet syndrome. Christian Bethencourt, of all people, sort of seized that role full time, um, or at least the starter role. So it's him and Mejia. What do you see as the future of that position for Tampa Bay? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly going to be Bethancourt for the time being. I think they would like to see Mejia take a step forward as well. Uh, and then they really like Rene Pinto, who's currently their third catcher, but you know, likely to start the season in Durham. But he's getting a lot of work right now with uh, Bethancourt and Mejia away at the WBC. Uh, they love what he does behind the plate. He's still a relatively young guy. Uh, they think there's more bat there that he showed in AAA. Uh, but I think they're also really comfortable for the time being with, with Bethancourt and, and Mejia being the other guy. I mean, Mejia is another one who took a step back. 
uh, performance-wise offensively last season. Uh, I'm sure they would love to see it be a more natural platoon um, with Mejia being able to switch hit and Bethancourt being obviously not Zanino, but kind of that power-hitting, right-handed catcher behind the plate that can get the line share of the start. So uh, I think that is where it's headed right now. They were really impressed by, like you said, Christian Bethancourt of all people. I think when they when they pulled that off, that trade, I was kind of thinking, all right, is he going to DH? Is he going to play some first base or, or whatever it may be? And they're like, we're going to put him behind the plate. And they were really, really, really impressed with the way that he continued to improve defensively, uh, the rapport that he established uh, with their pitchers, and just kind of the, the way that he was able to hit enough uh, to justify giving him the lion's share of starts, including both in the, the postseason last year. So they're really comfortable with him, I think. And it was also just a super fun story when he would pitch a little bit in September as a guy who was once converted that way. He, I think he had a game where he hit 90-something miles an hour, hit a home run, uh, and he just said, I think he's, I think his quote was, now I know what it feels like to be Otani. <laughs> uh, kind of, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Minus uh, yeah, 10 miles per hour or something yeah. like that. But yeah, <laughs> close enough. Yeah. I'm curious when it comes to Mejia, if, you know, do they consider the cement to be sort of dry on his defense? Because it's never been great. The advanced, advanced metrics don't love it. You would think that a team like Tampa would maybe be able to move the needle there with him. Is this just what they're getting? I think so. Yeah. I mean, there were, they saw some signs last season that he was being a little bit more vocal with the pitchers, being a little bit more kind of demonstrative behind the plate as far as uh, understanding the game plan and really trying to, you know, execute it and understand, get pitchers kind of on the same page with him. But as far as kind of the raw tools and everything, it probably, he probably is who he is at this point, which is fine if he's going to be, you know, 80, 90 games or less than that, probably as a, as a backup. And really, the key for him is just going to be getting more out of the bat because it is hard to justify the defense when you're getting subpar offensive production compared to the guy that he was in 2021 when he was just the absolutely perfect complement to Mike Zanino, which, again, you would think he would be uh, in a similar way for Christian Bethicourt. So the Rays are always at the vanguard and innovating and looking for ways to expose loopholes and try to take advantage of rules. And so are the new rules, uh, do you know if the Rays are, are viewing them as restrictions? I mean, these are suppressing our ability to find little edges, or do they see it as a new opportunity because there are going to be new ways to adjust to new rules and they can be at the forefront of that? Yeah, I'd say kind of an opportunity. And I think one thing you've seen, I mentioned Taylor Walls and Vidal Brujan and Josh Lowe is just kind of emphasizing athleticism, which you can kind of go up and down their roster and then especially up and down their, their list of top prospects. And you see guys with speed, guys who put the ball in play, guys who are actually pretty well built for these rule changes. So I think it's less about finding loopholes and more about finding players to uh, make the most out of the, the current environment. That's That seems to be the way they're going with it. I'm sure there will be a point this season where they do something and you say, oh, yeah, I didn't realize you could do that under these rules. And, of course, it was the Rays who did it first. But there hasn't been any indication, really, from what I've heard, read, or talked to guys about this spring as far as trying to, you know, find loopholes and, ex- uh, you know, exploit stuff. Uh, maybe because I, I think Kevin Cash has pretty well said that if MLB gets a sense that you're trying to exploit it, they will they will shut it down, most likely. I, I know that he is mostly in favor of the pitch timer to get rid of three-and-a-half-hour games, and I can agree with him on that. Right. I know you haven't been in camp constantly What with uh, your daughter, but the Rays uh, maybe have an advantage when it comes to figuring out how these rules worked in the minors, right? Because uh, on their major league 
coaching mm-hmm. staff. They have some former minor league coaches. I mean, they're not unique in that respect, I'm sure, but it seems like one potential way to get a jump on adapting to these rules is to have coaches who've uh, been at levels where they've already had to do that. Yeah, uh, I've talked to Brady Williams uh, since I've been back, and he's really been a great sounding board. Uh, Brady Williams is the manager in AAA Durham uh, the last couple of years, and he's now their third base coach. Uh, Kevin Cash has really leaned on him, just asking, all right, you know, what can we do with this? What's the benefit of this? Uh, you know, how does it work with the, the disengagements and everything? And uh, I think he's learned quite a bit just from having different guys on staff who have who have lived under it and played under it and a lot of the players really coming up through the minors guys like you know josh Lowe that i mentioned vidal brujan have played under it those rules have a sense of how they work um, and i think all of that has uh, really worked to their benefit so far as has just the general raise communication which is unparalleled that i've seen you know as far as the way that they communicate from front office to coaching staff to the minor leagues uh, they're all pretty well on the same page and i think that's really going to help them out once they Uh, actually have to play games that matter under these rules. So we always end these segments by asking what would constitute a successful season for this team. And the Rays are kind of a perennial contender. So maybe that makes it trickier to answer or more obvious. Uh, Just, you know, make the playoffs, win some playoff games, etc. But what are some other specific ways that the Rays or Rays fans could gauge whether this season went the way they wanted it to? I'll give you three. (laughs) <laughs> if that if that's permitted under the new rules, the first one would be not obviously making the playoffs, but being hotter and healthier once they get to the postseason, because they've certainly made it the last two years. But it, it's just felt like the wheels were falling off a little bit in 2021. It was the pitching last season. It was the lineup. Uh, they just need to be hotter and healthier than the competition heading into the playoffs, because th- at this point, making it is the expectation. I don't know if you would consider that just getting back a success. I guess you would have to. But you really want to make a run at this point, especially with this core that they have, the talent that they have. They don't their windows closing by any means. Uh, so I think that that is the first and most obvious one. Uh, the second would just be getting uh, impact from the farm system. Uh, like I mentioned, the Taj Bradleys and Curtis Meads, maybe Kyle Manzardo at some point at first base or Mason Montgomery, the left-handed pitcher, because uh, last season they probably didn't get as much from the farm system as you would expect. I mean, we voted Jose Siri as the uh, local chapters raise rookie of the of the year, which is obviously not ideal, not how you draw it up at the beginning of the year as a trade deadline acquisition being your, your rookie of the year. Uh, so I think they need to see some impact coming up from the farm. And then the third is just figuring out, uh, as usual, the stadium situation. This is probably the closest that they've been to, uh, you know, something of finding a permanent home beyond the 2027 season. Uh, The St. Pete mayor picked their bid with uh, the development partner Heinz as their choice to redevelop the Tropicana field site, the historic gas plant district. And, uh, you know, you could see a lot of progress on that front this season. I think they have a deadline of uh, at some point this summer for wanting to get a term sheet together and maybe a development agreement uh, by the end of 2023 and clock's ticking at this point. So I think this is a very big year as far as the future of the Rays in Tampa Bay. Yeah. What about the future of the Rays on the field, right? Because you said that there doesn't seem to be a a window that uh, could be closing anytime soon. I mean, do they look at this as just kind of hopefully a perpetual motion machine? Is there any expectation that they're targeting a certain time for a retrenching, you know, kind of like they had after Friedman and Madden left uh, early in Kevin Cash's tenure in the mid to late 20 teens, there was a, a lull, a low ebb for them. And then basically since 2018, when they missed the playoffs, but won 90 games, they've been right there every year, which is tough to do with the payroll that they typically run. And 
there's just a lot of talent, a lot of young talent. The farm system has graduated a lot of guys, so maybe the farm system doesn't rank as highly, but for a good reason. So do they see this as just sort of uh, indefinite contention or do they, you know, even if they don't say it publicly, think we have X number of years to win with this core? No, I legitimately think they believe they can have a sustainable small market contender and that their best way to win a World Series is just to get back as often as possible. Like I know a lot of teams say that, but the Rays truly have been practicing it. And I think that kind of speaks to the way that they have their farm system laid out. Some of it's roster crunch stuff, but the way that they have acquired prospects uh, it basically throughout the system up and down. I mean, they are as probably as strong at AAA as they are in the complex leagues. Uh, there is a, a wave after wave of talent, ideally, uh, coming to the big leagues, which is what you need uh, to sustain something like this. But certainly this is a pretty key window, just given the talent that they have locked up. And I, I think the thing that probably speaks more to that than anything else is the extension that they signed Tyler Glass now to, which is uh, you know pretty reasonable for this season, but $25 million, which will be a franchise record single season salary uh, next year. And they expect him to play for them. So you wouldn't do that unless you had a lot of faith in the, the core that they have and a lot of expectation that they're going to win now. All right. Well, you can follow along as we find out whether they win now with Adam at MLB.com. Adam, thanks again. Good luck with the season. Good luck with fatherhood. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. All right. Let's take one more quick break, and then we'll talk to Cody Stavenhagen of The Athletic about the Detroit Tigers, who have not been a whole lot of fun lately, but this segment will be fun, I promise. Be right back. All right, we are back, and it's time to talk about the Detroit Tigers with Cody Stavenhagen, who covers the Tigers for The Athletic and also hosts the Turning the Corner podcast about the Tigers. Cody, welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Speaking of turning the corner, that was uh, supposed to happen already, as I recall. Right. (laughs) That uh, didn't happen. We start some of these previews by asking what went wrong for a team the previous year. Maybe with the Tigers, I can ask whether anything went right. (laughs) Did anything go right in 2022 for the Detroit Tigers? I was about to say what went wrong. That's a that's an easy answer. The answer yeah, is everything. That's the rest of this podcast. So yeah, <laughs> just the, <laughs> the abridged version. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was there was definitely times like do we do we have to rename our podcast now because turning the corner is that's I don't I don't know that that's actually going to happen. Um, no, that that's the pessimistic view, and at the very least, turning the corner is going to happen on an altered trajectory. But yeah, uh, very few things went right from injury to underperformance to um, I I guess the other way to view it um, sometimes I wonder is 2022 the best thing that could have possibly happened to the Detroit Tigers in the in the weirdest sense because yeah right I think (laughs) they had some things going for them they spent some money thinking they were close to competing when in reality they just weren't um and and i think their evaluations of some internal players like jamer candelario were off i think their view of their own farm system was maybe not necessarily in line with the rest of the league and i think now a new front office with alavila fired scott harris leading the charge i think the infrastructure is being revamped pretty drastically and unfortunately this means the timeline like i said is altered 
Um, but I think the overall health of the organization has a chance to improve a lot here in just the next couple of years. Yeah, so it's been a talking point really since tanking started in earnest, the modern sort of Astros slash Cubs style tanking, whether eventually a, a team that tanked would not emerge from the tank as a contender. I don't know whether you can say that the Tigers tanked. I mean, they just rebuilt. Teams have always rebuilt. They were good for a while and then they got bad and they tried to get good again. It didn't work, right? So I think people were thinking, oh, well, maybe the Phillies are the first team that just aren't going to pull out of it. And then they kind of did, right? They just squeaked into the playoffs and then they made a real run and they're still contenders. So I guess you could say that the Tigers in this era are looking like the first team that really did fail to make it and i are we now in a a re-rebuild officially like is this still part of the same rebuild is it a, a fresh start is it a continuation i guess can you draw a clear line there between eras well i think you make a really good point there ben and it's not something that gets talked about a lot unfortunately no one really wants to read a book about the rebuild that didn't work uh but but i think that the tigers very much were following the basis of the Cubs Astros model. And it is a reminder that if you don't get everything right, or if you don't get very lucky uh, in, in a select few cases, that it's not a foolproof plan to work, especially when multiple teams throughout the league are following a very similar approach. The question about how do we label this now, I think is something I'm still trying to answer a little bit. Scott Harris in the new front office has been very averse to coming anywhere close to uttering the word rebuild again. I think that's because that's the that's the last thing the Tigers fan base wants to hear. But, you know, a, a saying I've adopted throughout the past few years is teams tell you a lot more what they think with their actions than their words. And if you look at how the Tigers approached this offseason, they were not active in free agency. They did make what could turn out to be some shrewd moves, and they really targeted controllable young position players, guys who aren't sheer prospects, guys who are, are major league ready or, or close to the major leagues, at least in the case of Justin Henry Malloy from the Braves. So what I see is uh, kind of a continuation of this rebuild, a little bit of a reboot of the rebuild. If you, if you want to call it rebuild 2.0, I don't think that's entirely inaccurate. I would guess the hope is this isn't another five to seven year process but uh, I, I think it is a multiple year process before this organization looks like Scott Harris wants it to. The rebuild remix. <laughs> Damn, I, I think you got the branding. I like that. <laughs> Coming soon to Detroit. Well, and it's always strange to talk about these because, you know, I don't mean to suggest that last year wasn't um, bad for the Tigers and for their fans, but they do have a number of young guys whose careers are far from over, right? Or at least we hope they are. So maybe we can start with some of them and try to find a way to, if not some optimism, at least a, a path forward for Detroit that doesn't involve them tearing the whole thing down again. And I think that some of that starts with Spencer Torkelson, who, you know, we were all a little surprised by this, right? When he was in college, he was just a very productive, very good hitter one of the better college hitters we've seen in the last decade, and his rookie season did not go well. Um, so what adjustments are they hoping he will make to to make himself, gosh, a league average player would be good at this point, but someone who might live up to the prospect pedigree that he had? Yeah, Torkelson's rookie season was um, just, just almost odd to watch. A guy that was considered a can't-miss type prospect 
Um, a guy whose swing I watched in college and was like, this is so simple and, and perfect and flawless. Surely it's going to translate. And he raked in the minors and then he gets to the major leagues and looks completely exposed. And I think most concerningly literally hit, I think, 212 on pitches right down the middle, uh, really struggled against fastballs. And it was just hard to explain. You would hear from the Tigers. They thought his swing was grooved, that he almost looked too robotic, too mechanical in the box. And I think the more we saw him against Major League Pitching, uh, that certainly became true. And and you just never saw him turn on a fastball like you might expect from a 1-1 pick. So this offseason, there was a lot of talk. Is he going to completely revamp his swing? Does he need a leg kick? Does he need to get more athletic in the box? And Torque showed up to spring training, and that wasn't really the case. I think he has some subtle tweaks. There's a little bit more of a detectable load, a little more hand movement. I think just trying to get him some more rhythm in the box. And then the big question is also, as his struggles continued last year, how much of that was physical, how much of that uh, surely became mental. It's tough to say. Um, Torkelson, so far, you know, the numbers in spring training don't jump off the page, but the underlying metrics... He has, I think, 10 balls of over 100 mile an hour exit velocity, and those are only the ones that have been played in stat cast ballparks. So he's hitting the ball hard. He seems to be having good at bats. Uh, I'd still like to see the guy just turn on a fastball and crush it out of the park for a time or two at some point. Yeah. We should talk about the other hopefully hitting cornerstone of the Tigers, Riley Green, who had a less discouraging rookie season and is uh, being bandied about as a possible breakout hitter. Dan Zimborski included him on his recent list of breakout candidates, and he wrote no player in 2022 underperformed his expected walk, strikeout and home run stats, which are derived from stat cast and plate discipline data more than Green did. So are you buying the breakout for Riley Green? What does he have to do other than perhaps have some luck go in his favor more often? Yeah, I thought the, those were some really good points from Dan, and I didn't previously realize the the walk to strikeout um, misfortune that that happened to Riley. I think if you look at just the sheer surface numbers, you look at his rookie years like, oh, he was okay. I think Riley Green's a really, really talented player, and I think he showed a lot of good things in the major leagues last year. He had a 430-foot homer off Shohei Otani, hit a walk-off homer to the Shrubs. In Comerica Park, he played really good defense and made a lot of highlight reel catches. He's been viewed as a very advanced hitter throughout the time in the minor leagues. There's some swing and miss in his game, but he can use all fields. He also has um, good raw power. He's also a very intuitive hitter. I think I totally buy Riley Green still having star potential in this league. Um, If anything, in addition to good luck, it's elevating the ball a little bit more. His launch angle was oddly low. His ground ball rate was, I think, 56.8% last year. I'm not sure exactly what was causing that. AJ Hinch has theorized a lot of it could just have been simply pitch selection. I would not be shocked at all if Riley Green turns into a breakout performer this year. Speaking of guys with some swing and miss in their game, eh? Eh? Oh, I, I wonder where this might be going. <laughs> well, we can't we can't very well not talk about Javier Baez, who <laughs> was one of one of the big free agent additions before last season. Um, obviously, a guy who we've we've all watched a lot and have seen the swing and the miss, but also some really spectacular home runs and incredible glove work. And he had a, a pretty disappointing year at the plate. Um, his habit like pretty well collapsed from 2021, but this is also a version of bias that we have seen and that I think a lot of people wondered if we would see. So 
Is there any adjustment that he could be making? And do you think there's any chance that he exercises his opt-out after this season? With Javi, I think the Tigers knew what they were signing up for. Um, A lot of bad and also a lot of good. The problem last year is there wasn't as much of that good Javi. At least it sure didn't seem like it. And it, it didn't help that he got off to a very, very poor start. May was one of the worst months of his entire career. And I think that just set kind of a negative tone for the year, for Javi's perception with a new fan base. Um, If you look a little deeper into the numbers after, I think, mid-June, he ranked eighth among MLB shortstops in WRC+. So from June on, he was more like the Javi Baez we are accustomed to seeing. He also made a lot of throwing errors at shortstop, led the league in errors. That is a little bit concerning, but seems easily correctable. Um, I know he did do a lot of uh, work on his footwork and his throwing this offseason. Wouldn't be shocked if that error total comes down a little bit. At the plate, I think it's a little naive to expect any major adjustments from Javi. I think Javi is going to be Javi, and I think he's still going to chase sliders down and away. Um, it's actually kind of crazy when you look at the numbers and realize his strikeout rate declined last year, actually pretty precipitously from 2022. But he's still going to chase. He's still going to strike out. I think the question is, uh, can we see a little bit more of that good hobby? Again, if you take away May of last year, the season was actually more in line with career norms from Javier Baez. So I wouldn't be shocked if his performance ticks up a little bit this year. Uh, I think the real question is, how is this guy going to age into his 30s? He has an opt-out, but if he doesn't exercise, the Tigers are going to have him for five more seasons. And my understanding has always been the Tigers got him largely because they were willing to give him an initial six years to pay him into his 30s, whereas other teams were a little bit hesitant of that. So I think Baez would have to have a really, really great year to even consider exercising that opt-out. I just have a hard time seeing him uh, making more on the open market than he's already under contract to make. Yeah, by baseball reference, where Javier Baez was the most valuable Tiger in 2022, which (laughs) definitely says more about the other Tigers than it does about Baez. But I think, uh, according to Fangrass, where only Tarek Skubal led Baez, and we know what happened to him at the end of the season. So, yeah, it was that kind of year. And it was that kind of year when it came to the other Tigers' uh, major marquee offseason addition, too, right? Eduardo Rodriguez, who I guess kind of gets an incomplete grade for the season because of personal issues that caused him to miss a significant amount of time. So what's the referendum on how he did when he was actually on the field and what the outlook is for him? Very weird year for Eduardo. Again, personal issues caused him to miss about two months in the middle of the summer, and it was marital in matter, but we never really found out a lot about what was what was actually going on. Um, there was a time when he was not in communication with the team, and I don't think that was great for his relationship with the club. But the good news is he came back after, again, missing two months in the middle of the season, and they ramped him up, and then toward the end of the year, he was... He looks like Eduardo Rodriguez. I think what we've learned about this guy in Detroit is that he's very steady and very reliable on the mound. I don't know if he'll get back to 2019 Cy Young contender Eduardo Rodriguez, but I think this is the guy you can hand the ball and expect six strong innings from almost every time out. I think he's a really tends to tends to pound the strike zone, tends to induce weak contact. He can miss some bats when he needs to. I think he 
still has the makings of a frontline starter. Again, I don't know if he's an quote-unquote ace, if he's really an elite pitcher, but I think he's a really good pitcher, and we've almost learned that more from the time Eduardo has missed, seeing how easily he seems to just come back right into the swing of things and, and be ready to take the ball and throw. Another point I did want to make real quick that we kind of skipped over talking about the the rebuild one thing that separated the Tigers from the Cubs and the Astros and other teams that have taken this course, they centered their rebuild largely around young pitching. Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, Matt Manning, Alex Fiedo, uh, whereas the Cubs obviously drafted a lot of young hitters, kind of said, we'll figure out the pitching later. Tigers viewed pitching as the game's most valuable commodity. The problem was they also learned why is the most valuable commodity, because it can be very fragile, it can be very scarce. And Casey Mize has had Tommy John. Alex Fajardo has had Tommy John. Tarek Skubal had flexor tendon surgery. And Matt Manning missed a large chunk of last year with elbow injuries. Um, that has all contributed greatly to to the Tigers' problems here. Yeah, I wanted to ask about those guys, but maybe in, in a broader sense, which is that I think that there was a stretch where my sense of the Tigers was that they had taken a step forward in terms of their pitching development and were helping guys get better. And it's a little hard to assess that given just how devastating the injuries have been there. But with the regime change, what is your sense of sort of the state of Tigers pitching development at this point? Yeah, I would. I think that's a really good point, Meg. And I actually think it's one of the strengths of the organization. I think we've seen it even before the regime change. I think since since AJ Hinch and Chris Fetter have been on the coaching staff two years now, um, there's been a pretty palpable difference. I think Fetter, the major league pitching coach, has um, some sway. Like it's more of a horizontal view throughout the organization. Gabe Rebus was hired from the Dodgers to be the director of pitching in the minor leagues. And if you look beyond the big name prospects, we've seen some really encouraging developments. Guys like Alex Lang in the bullpen, Bo Brisky, who's a 25th round pick, Garrett Hill, who's a later round pick, Brendan White, a guy in the in spring this year was a 26th round pick and looks like he could be knocking on the door of the major leagues. Joey Wentz returned from Tommy John and looks like he's going to have a future as a major league starter. Um, they've been pretty ravaged by injuries. You know, Matt Manning's development has been a six plus year progression that is still not done. But in just the past two years, there have been a lot of um, guys deeper in the Tigers system that have really made strides. And the Tigers constructed a pretty good bullpen last year. It seemed like almost everyone in that pin had good years. They got Joe Jimenez right and then traded him to the Braves. I think they're definitely doing some of the right things in terms of developing their pitchers. And you wrote recently about their attempt to overhaul their approach to injury prevention. So I don't know that we ever have a great handle on which teams are good or bad at this and how much of it just comes down to chance. But what are they trying to do at least to keep their players and particularly their pitchers healthy? Yeah, I, f- I feel like I wrote about 800 words that said no one would tell me anything. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I look, The Tigers were a very injured team last year. They actually didn't, you know, if you look at games missed or, or war lost, they don't necessarily appear at the top. That's largely because Riley Green, Alex Fajardo, and Joey Wentz were on the minor league injured list. So they don't necessarily count to, um, to those stats. Again, teams tell you what they think with their actions. Well, the Tigers got a new head trainer. They got a new head strength and conditioning coach. They made some other personnel changes in those departments. The rash of injuries literally 
cost people their jobs last year. And I think one thing I did glean is that the Tigers were, believe it or not, um, outdated in some of their training methods. It was a lot more about treating the symptoms and they did a fine job of that. But I don't think there was much emphasis on injury prevention and incorporating biomechanics into identifying guys that might be at risk for getting injured or using that data to maybe inform throwing programs or recovery timelines. Um, those changes are definitely made. You can sense little palpable differences around just the, the team complex. I mean, there are nutrition staffers walking around everywhere. There's definitely different equipment and technology going on in terms of guys' workouts and, and recovery and stuff like that. We don't know a lot of the exact details, but I think the best way to sum it up is the Tigers uh, aim to be more modern and incorporate more to create a holistic picture of how to keep guys healthy and also to have the training staff work with the hitting coaches, the pitching coaches. Um, it kind of increased the communication there. Injuries might be a, an awkward transition to, to this, but I think one of the really pleasant surprises for me, at least in the Tigers 2021 season, was Spencer Turnbull, who they unfortunately lost to Tommy John, but is back now. How has he looked in camp? Sort of how has his um, recovery progressed and what are your expectations of him this year? Yeah, as someone who's watched Turnbull since he broke through in the major leagues, I've always felt he was almost a little underrated nationally because he has really good stuff. His career numbers have been very good. And when he threw a no-hitter in 2021 against the Mariners, it seemed like he was finally really jumping on the bigger radar as, as a name baseball fans should know. And unfortunately, I think it was three starts later, he was on the IL and he ended up having Tommy John. Um, it has been a pleasant surprise to see him this spring. He's always been a guy with uh, uh, fittingly, effectively wild commands, is, is what Ryan Gardenhire used to always say. Ball just goes around everywhere. And I was like, this seems like a candidate who is maybe going to take a while to be able to command his secondary stuff after Tommy John. And it's still early, but so far in spring, Turnbull has kind of looked like he hasn't missed a beat. Fastball velocity is right where it was, sitting 94-95. His slider has looked good as ever. He's been able to throw it for strikes. His latest outing, he um, retired his first seven hitters against the Yankees, uh, struck out, I think, four of them. And Turnbull's looked really good. I will be interested to see how does he hold up through a season. Can he make it two times around a lineup? Will his command continue to be reliable? But um, sometimes I wonder if Spencer Turnbull is not the best pitcher on this staff, um, even after Tommy John surgery. Wanted to ask about one of the few free agent additions from this winter, Michael Lorenzen. I sort of sympathize with Lorenzen because he's always trying to transcend his limitations, or at least <laughs> <laughs> the limitations that have been opposed, imposed upon him, right? He is in a, if he's relieving, he wants to start. If he's pitching, he wants to hit, right? And he still is advocating for himself as a potential part-time two-way player. And, you know, I think at, at most of, on most rosters, we could probably close the book on Michael Lorenzen's offensive career. But this is the Tigers we're talking about. It's not as if they're <laughs> overflowing with offensive talent. So is he going to get his way at some point this year? Is there any chance? Yeah, that's a really funny question, and I definitely get Twitter comments all the time. Like, is Michael Lorenzen actually the best, you know, the third best hitter on this team? And it's not the most outlandish question of all time, um, but A.J. Hinch has been pretty clear. They they signed him to be a pitcher. They want him to focus on pitching. Unless things get dire, I, I don't anticipate that changing. He is... Um, 
one of the guys Scott Harris has talked about a little bit of a calculated risk there. The Tigers are trying to identify some upside, some untapped potential. Lorenzen um, changed his approach um, at, at last September and he altered his arm slot and he had a lot of success last September with the Angels. Tigers hope they can bring a little bit more out of um, out of him throughout a full season. And, and maybe that includes just don't focus on hitting at all and we'll see what happens. So they brought in him. They brought Matthew Boyd back. I think that one of the things that had always sort of marked my experience of the Tigers over the last couple of years was, well, there are reinforcements coming, right? They had all of these great prospects. They had a highly ranked farm system. A lot of those guys are on the big league club now. So I don't want to knock the system for being less good just because, you know, they've graduated guys, which is what they're supposed to do. But who are who are the reinforcements for this team at the minor league level who we might see if you know, if Matthew Boyd's recovery from injury doesn't go well, if Michael Lorenzen decides that he insists upon being a hitter full time or no playing time will be had, like, <laughs> who are the guys who are going to come and reinforce this team if the need arises? I think the state of the farm system is pretty interesting right now. Obviously, it's fallen pretty precipitously down rankings with guys like Torkelson and Green graduated. There aren't necessarily the surefire stars in this system anymore, but I think we are slowly starting to see fruits of um, changes in player development that, again, happened two years ago, even before there was a, a change at the general manager position. And I think there's more depth on the farm system, maybe not those you know top guys, those surefire everyday players, but I think there's there's depth. And I think we saw it last year on the pitching side with Wilmer Flores, who was an undrafted free agent in 2020, who had a terrific year, was a futures game guy in double A and and could easily be able to pitch in the big leagues at some point this year. On the position player side, um, there's a longer list of names, guys like Parker Meadows, Andre Lipschitz, who have played really well this spring. Colt Keith looks like he might be the best young hitter in the entire system right now. And then the the two guys most commonly ranked top two are Jackson Job, a number three overall pick, and Jace Young, the Tigers' number 12 pick last year. Um, I think that's kind of a small sampling of names to monitor. I already mentioned Brendan White, a lesser-known guy who looks like he's going to pitch in the major leagues. Um, Ty Madden uh, you know, was a college starter out of Texas who probably isn't far from the major leagues. Um, I already mentioned Joey Wentz, Alex Fajardo, Bo Brisky, who aren't technically prospects anymore, but are young guys who might start in AAA but could easily be uh, back in big league starters. I think you can feel pretty good about the pitching depth. It's a matter of, okay, are any of these guys going to pop and become something a little more than number four, number five, or swingman type pitchers in the big leagues? should ask a couple more questions about the offense. Maybe third base specifically is uh, projected to be a weak spot. The Tigers are 29th on the Fangraphs depth charts at third base, and a couple of the candidates there, Tyler Nevin and Andy Ibanez, are injured, so it seems like Nick Maton is maybe getting the upper hand. Maybe tell us a little bit about the trade that brought Nick Maton to Detroit, and then tell us a little bit about Maton and Wolfie. <laughs> yeah, was, the, the trade was definitely an early look at, I think, Scott Harris's plan to build some things in Detroit. The Tigers looked at, okay, what are our strengths? We have some relief pitching. We know relievers are volatile by nature, and I'm sure this conversation happened. Let's be honest, we're probably not going to win a lot of games. How important is our closer right now? They trade Gregory Soto to the Phillies. They threw in Cody Clemens, who was a utility player, maybe a little bit of a 4A guy. And they got Nick Maton and Matt Vierling and Donnie Sands. I think it's a pretty interesting 
return guys who were more you know Maton and Veerling were role players for the Phillies last year in Detroit they're going to get the chance to be everyday players and there's some encouraging data that that suggests maybe they could have a little bit of a higher ceiling Donnie Sands a, a catcher he's probably going to start in AAA but you know he made his debut last year with the Phillies there um, he's a really good pitch framer there's some things to like about him too so again they clearly targeted controllable young hitters and they got three of those basically in exchange for a closer um, again it's a matter of okay are any of these guys actually everyday players are any of them going to pop are the Tigers right that they could have something more uh, Veerling's a really interesting guy, you know, a, a kind of a stat cast darling with great arm, great exit velocity, great speed. It's like, can he get in the, the ball in the air a little more? Is there actually something in there? But so far in spring, uh, Maton's been, I think, the most the most encouraging part. He's really been hitting the ball well. He looks super smooth in the infield, whether it's at short, third, or second. And yeah, he calls himself uh, Wolfie and, you know, it's his nickname and he barks and people bark at him. And it's kind of this thing that has taken on a life of its own. He uh, won't reveal the origin of the nickname, which probably tells you it's not something he uh, wants to share publicly. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, he, he's been a pretty fun in- addition so far. And I agree. I think he's going to get the bulk of the reps at third base, especially against right handed pitching. We talked about Baez and Rodriguez. There was a third prominent addition to the Tigers last season whose 2022 didn't work out quite the way that he and the Tigers were hoping it would. That's Austin Meadows, who came over in the Isak Predis trade. Predis obviously had a great year with Tampa Bay, and Austin Meadows suffered from various physical ailments and then didn't play after mid-June. And he came out and we admired the statement he made about his mental health at the time. So... How is he doing to the best of your knowledge and what are his hopes or the team's hopes for him this season? Well, you talk about nothing going right for the Tigers last season. And that was certainly the case for Austin Meadows. Even uh, before we learned about what was really going on was with his mental health. He had an inner ear infection that led to him getting vertigo. And then he came back from that. And then he uh, got COVID-19. And then he came back from that. And then he had inflammation in both of his Achilles tendons. So he missed all this time, and it was just a just a really strange summer. Good news is he's back. Uh, physically, he's healthy. Mentally, he seems to be in a much better place. He's talked about getting with a good team of therapists. He had a um, his wife had a baby girl this off season. You know, he's we've seen him in the same clubhouse as his brother, and he he just seems to be in good spirits right now. Tough to ever know what's fully going on with a guy, of course, but I think everyone is optimistic that the Tigers can get more of the Austin Meadows they expected in terms of on-the-field performance this year. Um, So far in spring, obviously, he missed a lot of time last year. He's been a little bit slow to get going. I think it's as simple as finding his timing on the fastball. The last couple days, we've already seen him hit a couple balls a little bit harder. Um, so, you know, I don't know, will he be 2019 all-star 30 home run Austin Meadows? I'm not sure, but I think at the very least, he should be one of the toughest at bats in the Tigers order and, and arguably the best player on this team. It's funny for a team that has a lot of question marks in terms of the individual performances, uh, that we might get from guys who regressed or struggled last year. It is more settled in a lot of ways. Are there other position battles in camp that listeners should be aware of? Yeah, I think. 
the fourth outfield spot is also it's probably the second biggest battle and you're looking at Akil Badu who's a tremendous you know rule five breakout two years ago and Kerry Carpenter who was one of the best stories in all of baseball last year he went from an unknown guy to he was leading the minor leagues with 30 home runs at the time he was promoted to Detroit in August last year they have very different skill sets they're both left-handed batters but Carpenter is kind of a, a power bat Badu is more speed. Neither are great defenders. Badu is probably better um, in an ideal world. You know, if Badu is able to get on base and hit the ball in the gaps and steal some bases, he's a really fun electric player to watch when he's right. At the same time, Carpenter had some success in his short sample in the big leagues. I think a 128 OPS plus and just over 30 games. I doubt both guys are going to be on the opening day roster given they're both left-handed bats. And it's kind of an interesting decision. It really comes down to what skill set do you want? Um, I think Badu is a little more versatile, does a little more for you. But on a team that really has struggled to produce runs over the past few years, can Carpenter hit his way onto the roster? Both are interesting players. I'm sure we'll see some of both this year. Um, and then Parker Meadows, he isn't going to break with a minor league team, but or with a major league team, but he has had a a wonderful spring training. Um, Austin Meadows' younger brother, really toolsy, fast player who was a second round pick, struggled early in the minors, and then kind of hit a breakthrough last year. I wouldn't be shocked if he's also pushing for some time in the major leagues later on this summer. It's Miguel Cabrera's last season, and it's been a long Pujolsian swan song, I guess you could say. The song is going on and on and on, right? And all respect to Miggy and what he's accomplished in his career. But over the past six seasons, he's a couple wins below replacement. And now that the big round numbers of 500 homers and 3,000 hits are behind him, there's a little less day-to-day intrigue. So... Even Pujols uh, ultimately met his end with the Angels, and it's unlikely that Cabrera will have an incredible resurgence in his final season as Pujols did. So how do you think his last season will play out? Is he really blocking anyone or because the Tigers are kind of bereft of at least hitting talents? Maybe he's not taking anyone's spot. How much playing time will he get? And I assume there's no way that he wouldn't actually complete the season with the Tigers. Yeah, isn't it weird how we now can go 30 minutes talking about the Tigers and not even mention Michael Cabrera? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it's definitely the state of things. This is going to be his final season. It's been kind of a long, awkward journey to this point already. There was a time at the end of last year where Miguel's right knee was really bothering him. Go look at his numbers after after the All-Star game. He hit below 200 with uh, pretty much zero power. It was rough, and his playing time was reduced pretty significantly. He's playing about once a series. Uh, I think there was a time he really wondered, can I do this another year? Bottom line is $32 million. Um, speaks, holds a little weight, you know, so Cabrera's going to come back. He's going to do this one last time. I am curious to see how often he will play. I wouldn't be shocked if it's more of that once a series type plan, um, which then even if there's not one guy in particular, he's blocking, I think it really limits your roster construction. You're carrying a DH who's only going to play every, you know, every third game when Kerry Carpenter would make a lot of sense for those DH at bats. Um, You could spread the DH spot around a little bit, get Austin Meadows, some DH, Eric Haas, who's a power hitting catcher. 
Uh, I think, you know, if Torkelson doesn't play right, having that DH open would allow you to carry maybe more of a, another corner infielder that the Tigers didn't really pursue this offseason. Instead, you get Miguel Cabrera and you you have to make do with it. I do encourage fans to just enjoy this. If you're in Detroit, if you're going to go see see the Tigers play, this is your last chance to see one of the all-time great hitters, one of the best hitters of an entire generation. But the performance is what it is at this point. His power has been on the decline for several years to a degree which you know, was not even really comparable with Pujols. Miguel can still, you know, when he's right, when he his knee isn't killing him, he can, he, you know, he was almost more of a slap hitter throughout the first half last year when he's hitting like 308. Maybe he can find some things, ways to be productive in his own way, but uh, I think the reality is this is where we're at with Miguel Cabrera, and, and we have kind of one more year to to witness it. And maybe his power has eroded to the point that bringing in the fences or lowering the fences, it's uh, too late to salvage much of that, although I <laughs> did see in his Instagram comments that he was pleased to see that the dimensions were changing. So what's the rationale there if you can lay out what the new outfield dimensions will look like? How much of this, if any, is a response to the Tigers having the majors' worst offense in 2022? How much of it is just about balancing things out? What's the idea here? Yeah, I think it's a response to the past 23 years of Comerica Park being um, huge. You know, uh, center field at 420 was the largest dimension in the major leagues. They've brought that into 410. They've also brought in right center a little bit, and they have lowered those walls to seven and a half feet. So they're a little shorter. Um, I think the thought is less to radically change the ballpark and more to make it maybe a little more fair, a little more balanced. You know, if you you look at the park factors, it actually isn't as much of a pure pitcher's park as people might think. Um, it's spacious gaps make it good for doubles and tremendous for triples, but it is a pretty terrible park for home run hitters. I think the goal was just to correct that. I think Scott Harris coming in. Um, was a little bit of a catalyst to actually get something done. It's a talking point every year in Detroit, um, and it's it's kind of like that change finally happened. Again, I don't think it's going to have a huge difference, but uh, I think the goal of the park is a little more reasonable in, in center and right center. If my ears don't deceive me, we may be delaying a dog walk here or at least a, a play session of some sort. I was hoping to avoid that. We got the we got the dog whine for sure. Well, now we have a bark. She's here to ruin the pod. <laughs> well, we're a dog-friendly pod. That's not Nick Maton, is it? It's... <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, well, we support personas among the major leaguers, but... I don't want to delay your your dog's gratification here. So last question, we always end by just asking, what would constitute a successful season for the team in question? Now, it, it almost can't be worse, I would hope, than last season was, but it is largely the same cast in place here. So probably we're not going to say making the playoffs is the goal here. I mean, sure, it'd be great. Miracles happen. But what are some ways that the Tigers and their fans could gauge whether we get closer, at least, to turning the corner this season, whether it's uh, the farm or young players coming along or injury rehabs or anything else? Yeah, I think the 2021 season where the Tigers won 77 games and they played above 500 ball after May 8th is a... A uh, pretty good blueprint for what the Tigers could do this year. Problem was, I think 2021 um, almost created a false sense of hope, and it did cause the Tigers to go in in free agency when maybe they weren't really quite ready. 
but it was such an encouraging year and you saw palpable progress and the team more than anything was was fun to watch even if they weren't a playoff team they played good baseball and they they were kind of scrappy and and they were just fun uh so if anything I would hope that the the Tigers, you know, the optimistic view of the Tigers is that they can pull off something like that a little bit. It's hard to see upside beyond that. Um, I think there's just not a lot of thump in this lineup to be a 500 team, I don't think. But um, if your pitching stays a little more healthy, if you get bounce back performances from players like Jonathan Scope, if Torkelson is a little more like the Torkelson you thought you were getting, and a few things go in your favor, I think the Tigers could win, you know, somewhere in the mid 70s. And if they can be fun and, and show some progress with their young players, then then maybe all hope is not lost here for the next few years. All right. Well, the corner will eventually be turned. <laughs> so one can, of these days, right? Yeah, it has to happen. <laughs> one of these years, at least, or decades. So you can tune in to Cody's podcast, Turning the Corner. You can also read him regularly at The Athletic, covering the Detroit Tigers. Hopefully he will have a happier year covering the team this year than he did last year. Thanks for coming on and thanks to your dog for her patience. Uh, think thanks for putting up with me and thanks for putting up with her. I appreciate you guys. All right. So let's wrap up, as always, with the Pass Blast, which comes to us from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston and also comes to us from 1980, honoring baseball's most eccentric figures. In 1980, baseball lost two of its greatest innovators, Bill Veck and Charlie Finley, each sold off control of their respective franchises. To appropriately honor the contributions of these two men, Associated Press sports writer Will Grimsley offered a suggestion. Each year, MLB should host what effectively would be a gimmick game, recreating and even one-upping Finley and Vex's zaniest baseball experiments. Describing his idea, Grimsley recounted some of Vec and Finley's greatest antics before proposing some of his own. Hook up a telephone between the dugouts and the home plate umpire. When the manager wants to blow his stack... He doesn't have to storm onto the field. He just picks up the phone and dials the ump. Put a couple of clowns on coaching lines. That's just half of it. That's not a reference to the first base and third base coach just being clownish, but actual clowns. That's just half of it. Give out free dishes and orchids at the gate. Present a thoroughbred racehorse to the patron who guesses the exact score, inning, and identity of the game-winning run batted in. Let a barbershop quartet or a rock and roll band provide changeover music, and don't forget the fireworks. Grimsley's gimmick game, which he believed would be a fitting farewell by baseball to the sport's two foremost innovators, of course never happened at the major league level. Perhaps now, though, as the league has experimented with the Field of Dreams game and continuously seeks new ways to boost fan interest, maybe it's time to bring this idea to life. The gimmick game. See, but see, Ben... We've already yeah. found the right solution to this, which was your earlier desire to see more WBC. Because yeah. those games aren't gimmicky, to be clear. That is not the project. But, no. you know, if what we want is like a fun, exciting deviation from the baseball we normally see, one way to do that would be to turn effectively while loose on baseball, basically. Yes. And like, you know, have one guy grow an arm out of the top of his head <laughs> and another guy have like very big shoes and another guy have tiny, tiny gloves. 
But wouldn't it be more fun to see different combinations of the players that we're already excited to see more often, say, in an international competition that we do every two years? I think it would be. I think so, too. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I guess this isn't that dissimilar from just your average minor league game, right, right? with some (laughs) of the side so stuff that happens there. But also, it's uh, sort of Savannah Bananas-esque, right? And I guess uh, some of these uh, changes, I mean, first of all, the the manager calling the umpire on the dugout came to argue, that seems less fun because we wouldn't all get to enjoy the argument. Why would we want that? I mean, it would be kind of funny to see the umpire answer the phone, I guess, but I don't see why we wouldn't want the manager to go out there and kick dirt and throw things. That seems much more fun. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, not at people, but like Mm -hmm. around people. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we're already honoring Vec and Finley with the pitch clock and the other innovations that are going to be part of actual games, right? I mean, the actual games are getting more gimmicky, I guess you could say. Some of the gimmicks are good. Some of the gimmicks are not so good, but it's at least in the spirit of trying stuff. But doesn't that mean that the bases have to keep getting bigger in order to fulfill (laughs) the spirit of this until the entire field is just, you know, the base? Yeah, just a little bit bigger, just year by year, just like the below the just noticeable difference threshold. It's like <laughs> Lars Snoopar with his pepper grinder getting progressively bigger yeah. in the dugout last year. Could just be like swapping the bases in with slightly larger bases until suddenly it dawns on us. Wait, these are Those even are bigger big than before. Bases. Yeah. These are huge bases. Yeah. All right. So our trivia answers for today, the head-to-head record all time, the Tampa Bay Rays are 85 and 84 against the Tigers. So just barely squeaking ahead there. And as for the players, uh, first of all, another oversight from last time we were doing Pirates and Astros and noted that Jerry Royce was the all-time pitching war leader among players who had played for both of those teams. Somehow Garrett Cole, who famously played for both those teams, was omitted from the list there. So it's Jerry Royce, Rick Roden, Garrett Cole, Danny Darwin, Doug Drabeck, Bobby Shantz, podcast legend, Dave Roberts, etc. Anyway, Jerry Royce was the right answer, but Garrett Cole should have been on the list. But the answers for today, the Rays and the Tigers. So the greatest hitter by career war ever to play for both of these franchises, Johnny Damon. Mm. Johnny Damon, legendary Detroit Tiger, Johnny Damon. <laughs> Johnny Damon. How many how many games did Johnny Damon play for the Detroit Tigers? Honestly, I forgot that that happened. He yeah. played a season for them. He was uh, 36. It was 2010 he played for them. And I do remember him playing for the Rays in 2011. So back-to-back years, Johnny Damon. But long after his Royals and Red Sox and Yankees years that you probably associate <laughs> with Johnny yeah. Damon. Who I believe is a Savannah Banana now. Wait, so. seriously? <laughs> yeah, Johnny Damon was uh, playing for the Bananas the other day with like a, a little bit of a, you know, a little post-playing career punch on Johnny Damon, which which looked out of place on him just because, huh. you know, he always kept it pretty tight during his playing days. But anyway, he's suiting up. and Bananas. <laughs> I'm looking now. Let's see. Yeah. After Damon, it would be Carlos Pena. Aubrey Huff, Damian Easley, and Matt Joyce. Those are the other Ray Tigers. And yeah. And as for the pitchers, we have David Price, of course. Sure. Number one, Hideo Nomo, Edwin Jackson, who played for many, many teams, Joaquin Benoit, and Jason Johnson. 
And then as for the first players to play for these two franchises, for the batters, it would be Bubba Trammell. Amazing. And uh, yeah, <laughs> and, and John Flaherty. And then pitcher Julio Santana. So, okay. yeah. Johnny Damien played 145 games for the Tigers? No. Yeah. Full season. Yeah, who knew? No. Mm-hmm. That's impossible. <laughs> I don't believe that to be true. Why didn't I re- yeah. Oh, we were in the midst of the financial crisis. That's why I don't remember any of this stuff. <laughs> All right. I get it. According pass. to your own website, it did happen. So. Yeah, I'm looking at that. Look mm-hmm. at that. And then, and then even more games, five more games for Tampa Bay the year after. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow, yeah. Ben. I've learned... Yeah. I've learned something. Yeah. The, the bananas uh, uniforms, they really are very yellow. They are, yes, they are. They oh, are they would have yellow. To be, really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they could have they embraced the, the Padres color scheme completely because you know how you have a banana and sometimes you're like, I'm going to let this banana kind of do yeah. its thing. And then you and have banana bread. Bruce yeah. banana. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> All right, that will do it for today. Thanks, as always, for listening. And remember to get us your theme song submissions if you're interested. You can email us at podcast at fancrafts.com. Just wanted to note, after we recorded Diamond Sports Group, the corporation that owns the Bally Sports Regional Sports Networks, did officially file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, which we noted was supposed to happen at some point this week. It happened a little earlier than expected. So yeah, this is getting real. Also, some of you may recall that on episode 1975, we Entered about Kike Hernandez's comments about how he had sharded during the 2020 NLDS. We pinpointed the exact moment when it happened using the details that he shared. Well, on Tuesday, Kike tweeted a picture of himself on a bed surrounded by a product called Dude Wipes. Caption was, thanks to the guys at Dude Wipes, I'm prepared for my next shard attack because shit emoji happens. If you're not familiar with Dude Wipes, these are basically baby wipes, but branded for men and they're less macho. They're for dudes. I guess supposedly they're bigger than regular baby wipes and flushable. And you know it's okay for manly men to use them because they're called dude wipes. Anyway, I guess they saw a little branding sponsorship opportunity here and they sent Kike Hernandez a bed's worth of dude wipes. So that's what he got for sharing his story. We have not received any dude wipes for analyzing his story in great detail. I'm not saying we want any dude wipes, although I'd take some extra baby wipes. Always need some of those. But because we are not sponsored by dude wipes or anyone else, we rely on your sponsor via Patreon. So you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Jake Winstell, Riley Nolick, Adam Crow, Gus, and Luis Torres. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only. Now more than 1,000 members strong. It's a great place to discuss the WBC and spring training, if you're still paying attention to that. You also get access to monthly bonus episodes of the podcast, one of which we will be recording this coming weekend. I think Meg and I will be discussing The Last of Us and Poker Face now that their first seasons are complete. There are lots of other goodies available, too. Playoff live streams, discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs membership. Check it out, patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Patreon supporters can contact us through the Patreon site, and everyone else, as noted, can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can join our Facebook group, 
group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild, which is also about to hit or just did hit the 1,000 member mark. Dylan Higgins has indeed departed, and so today, thanks for editing and production assistance, goes to our new editor slash producer, Shane McKeon. I'm sure we'll have Shane on the pod at some point, but for now, you can find him at Shane underscore McKeon on Twitter, or you can find his website at ShaneMcKeon.com. We are very happy to have him on board. He is an Effectively Wild listener, and he has a great podcast producing pedigree. He's worked on shows like Planet Money and Death of the Wing and Obsessions Wild Chocolate. He passed his editing audition with Flying Colors. Welcome aboard, Shane. We'll have a non-preview pod coming to you next time, followed by another preview pod at the end of the week. In theory, it'll be the Mets and the A's. So we will be back soon. So here I come, it's a matter of style. I'm not sure if I go first for a while. Elegant freak, what is my scene? A glass of champagne and the smell of kerosene. Good boss, my shoes, I got no time to lose. I put my scary silver shades on, the show must go on.